Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Bill Rawls, who is a fourth generation physician whose own health journey had led him to pursue an alternative route of healing. He's an expert on herbal remedies and recently published a book solely focused on health at the cellular level. Dr. Rawls, we are so excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I cannot wait to dive into the topics of herbs and cell health and vegetation in general. And I'm just so thankful you're here with us today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It of is course. a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Right on. Well, I, I'm excited because I feel like there's some overlap in in your journey and some of what my family has also experienced. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but without, without uh, getting there too soon, would love to know what it was like growing up as Bill Rawls, um, where you were born. Tell me about your, your, your parents, your family. All right. Yeah. Um, I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, but um, until about three years ago, I never lived there. Mm-hmm. I, my grandfather was a general practitioner in Jacksonville, North Carolina, which okay. you would know as the biggest marine air base in the United States. I believe it's the biggest. It's definitely mm-hmm. one of the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and he practiced there when it was a little t- small town before the military base was there. General practitioner, country doctor, and um, it was coastal. He, we had, he had a little cottage down on the coast, uh, right on the water. Um, so, you know, when I was around him, I used to go on house calls and, uh, you know, I can remember going to deliveries and going to people's houses and, and uh, you know, going to the pharmacy. He used to have a key that he would open up the back door of the pharmacy to go in wow. and get people's drugs because the pharmacist was his next door neighbor and a good friend. Wow. And um, but uh, he was also my fishing buddy or I was his fishing buddy. You know, we'd go off in a little boat and go fishing together. And that was all fun. And. He influenced my father when, after my mother and father got married, my father, uh, his son-in-law, to go to medical school. So went back to college, uh, medical school at the University of North Carolina. And that was in the, the 60s and 70s. And there was a lot going on in Chapel Hill in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. if you can imagine. And I was growing up, you know, I was a preteen, so I was just kind of watching everything that was going on around me and race riots and Vietnam uh, demonstrations and all this crazy stuff. So my life was split between that and this academic town and this little coastal town hanging around with my grandfather, who Mm -hmm. was a general practitioner. So it was was interesting. How did you how did you maintain a sense of level-headedness during that chaos because it reminds me of how people how young adults or teens probably felt in the recent years you know how did you mentally process what was going on in, in society at that time yeah you know I can remember being a later teenager and just being really afraid of the draft mm. coming up and and it stopped about two or three years before I became 18 But uh, that fear was there, you know, it was real. And I guess it, you know, that time very much influenced my personal thinking. Um, But 
I dealt with it by getting out in nature. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, by the time I was seven, I could run the skiff down at the coast, and I used to go off fishing in the marshes and and uh, and the Piedmont around the Chapel Hill area where the University of North Carolina was. I spent half my life in the woods. You know, mm-hmm. we. I was. Uh, I grew up wanting to be a naturalist mm. more than anything else. So mm-hmm. that's um, the, yeah. That's how I cope. And you know what? This past fall, I built a little fourteen-foot skiff and got a motor for it, and, and I'm right back where I started. And no playing way. around in the marshes and hiking in the woods, and yeah, it's great. A skiff is like a little boat. Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And look at that. Yeah, you went right back to nature. So you were going on house calls, and I'm fascinated by this with your grand with your grandfather, and yeah. so he was so he was obviously making the choice to bring his grandson along, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, to to you know that th- those days. What year was that happening? Th- those kind of house visits and. Um, it was. He actually died when I was eleven. So it was from the time I was six or seven to the time I was 11. He died suddenly. It was an accident that he drowned. Um, But it was, uh, he was 69 when he passed away. So that was about 1969 um, when that happened. Um, And of course, that was a big disruption in my life. Um, But, you know, I I carry those memories pretty closely. And it it was interesting just the way he went about things. And, you know, I think probably what he had to offer to people more than anything else was just good nature and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the drugs, yeah, they could ease pain and that sort of thing. And, and but he was just good to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of what kind of fishing were you guys doing? junk fishing <laughs> he wasn't much of a fisherman we there there are fish here called uh pig fish and croakers and you use just uh salted squid and little hooks and you know and and they're maybe uh six to eight inches long and they're full of bones but we had a good time mm. now were you catching them to to eat them or were you releasing them what was we the... ate them you ate them <laughs> Can't say they were great, but we ate them. So, so you you catch a you catch a, a a basket of fish, and you're bringing them back to the house. And are you filleting them up? Are you scaling them, deep frying hey, them? These things are too small to fillet. You just uh, you, just you know you, you you just cut the head off and scale them and fry them up and eat them and right on. and eat yeah. a lot of cornbread along with it to get down all the little bones. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that fish bones i know lots of people that grind those into paste and consume that so it's got to be good for you right, right on so so um your grandfather did, did he and, and your grandmother live nearby was it just your grandfather and then your parents um, you um, said my grandmother too you know she they, they had a house in jacksonville that there was a regular house and we stayed there a lot but his favorite place was to go down to this little cottage mm. and back then you know you have to understand that um a beach cottage, there was no insurance at that time. So mm. a beach cottage was considered disposable. Mm. You know, it was something that if a hurricane came along and wiped it away, it wasn't going to be that much to replace it. So 
no heat, no air conditioning, no insulation in the walls. I mean, it was just a, a wood thing. Yeah. You know, it had a kitchen, had a couple of bathrooms. That was it. Mm. Um, but, you know, summertime, oh, it would get so hot and sweaty in that place. But, um, you know, it just all of it just was. Mm-hmm. It's like camping, basically. If you just go in with that mindset of that minimalist no running yeah. water we're, you're good to go i'm curious uh, if you if if the way your family talked about health and wellness and and perhaps food was influenced because you came from a long line of physicians and if that kind of weaved its way into your family culture or if at that time that was kind of left separate yeah it was it People, was just compartmentalized. It, it was a different age you have mm. to understand that you know it's uh, it was along about the time. So the '50s were the onset of the processed food revolution and the fast food revolution. Mm-hmm. And you know, before that time, I mean, people I'd somehow we think, well, food used to be better. No, food didn't used to be better. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from 1900 to 1930, in in uh, in North Carolina, uh, the the staple was salt pork, and mm-hmm. and the the rate of gastric cancer was really high because of it, and things just came in season when they became in season, and people used to pot, you know, to to can things for the winter time, but. Um, you know, so so foods in cans and packages and just you could get it and it was so easy and you just throw it in a pan with a bunch of other stuff and that's all you had to do. That yeah, was wonderful for people. I mean, they, they thought it was great and it tasted good because it had all that carbohydrate and fat and it was like, yeah, this is great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and soft drinks. Wow, soft drinks. I mean, you know, my grandparents... <laughs> had a little back um it was it was just this room kind of off the back of the house with an with an old refrigerator in it and there used to be people that would come to the house once a week with crates of coke and mountain dew and other soft drinks and load that that freezer that that refrigerator full of soft drinks and why just because that's what we drink <laughs> that's in what your, everybody in drink. your household you're saying you guys would just make sure that was stocked oh yeah Interesting. Oh, yeah. okay fascinating yeah and everybody did this was mm-hmm. a way of life i'm telling you it's it's um and 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 you know it hadn't probably been the way of life 20 years before that but that was suddenly the convenience of food was just absolutely extraordinary so it's uh and people loved it and Mm -hmm. nobody thought about the health issues that might be associated with it Mm -hmm. um so no doubt about it um my grandfather uh drowned he he was uh with my cousins um but they suspect that he probably had a heart attack you know Mm -hmm. so the other side of it is he had been. He ate a lot of this kind of food. He drank a lot of uh, soft drinks, and and people with the onset of 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 all of these processed foods, the health of America was changing very rapidly, mm-hmm. but nobody was taking notice. And the kind of the mindset at that time 
um, as it went into my father's time in medicine was eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, because we've got medical therapies that are going to fix whatever you do. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Go at it. And people did. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Do you think that that mentality still persists today? Oh, yeah. No <laughs> doubt about it. I yeah. mean, you know, a third of the country is obese and either diabetic or borderline diabetic. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you're I... talking about an illness that type 2 diabetes really didn't exist before 1900. Mm, now a yeah. third of the population? Wow. Yeah. What was, weren't we, weren't you reading a book and the, the stat was something like 70% of the population struggles with either being overweight or obese. It was a crazy number. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember what the exact number was, but I was just blown away by even shopping today. For example, I just took my three daughters shopping to this grocery store really quick before we hopped on this call. And I was just looking around at the end caps of these aisles and the entire cereal aisle. I, w I was just yeah. blown away by the amount yeah. of not real food is sold in the grocery stores. It's like no sure. wonder people are so confused. And so if you yeah. have a medical system who at the time is so proud of their modern day interventions, right? And their innovation in, in the drug and surgery and technology space that they're they're basically telling folks like, it's okay, we'll, we'll cover you. You make your own lifestyle decisions, we'll cover you. Yeah. And we're finding out really quickly that that was never true. And it's especially not true now. And so yeah. thanks for kind of sharing that. Cause I think that's a really important piece that for folks who didn't live through that time, we don't know. We it just is. assume everything you know, it, it's, uh, is yeah. the same. Yeah. The seventies and eighties were a pretty heady time for modern, some modern medicine. I mean, you think about it, you know, we suddenly had, antibiotics mm -hmm. that weren't there before that we could treat acute bacterial infections and we had vaccines and we had new drugs that were keeping people alive mm -hmm. um and you know and 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 it was it was pretty remarkable and surgeries surgeries had gone from something that was pretty archaic to less and less invasive surgeries and you know so when i look at it it's like that's the best of the whole thing. You know, we still do a great job at acute intervention. Mm -hmm. um, our modern surgeries, our medications for stabilizing illness when people are in an acute phase, they're wonderful. And mm -hmm. we should all have access to that. Um, but our ability to manage people with chronic illness or and and, and restore them to a normal state of the health is extremely limited. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's where I've, I put a lot of my career is, is really trying to answer those questions in different ways and, you know, figure out other ways to talk to talk about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading in your book. So and I want to continue on with your sort of life story here, because you eventually grew up said I want to enter the medical profession, but you kind of knew from an early age that you didn't want to be in the illness cycle, right? And that's kind of what led you to um, OBGYN and treating um, typically healthy women with healthy pregnancies, right? It's a little more of a the upside to the medical system. And so I'm curious, walk us through that time in your life and your decision to enter into healthcare. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I had grown up with medical journals of all these horrible diseases lying around the house uh, <laughs> wherever I went, which is kind of was, frightening when you're yeah. a kid, you know? And um, it, it's uh, so when I got to medical school, you know, it was um, interesting um, on the uh, medical floors, you know, and in your first two years, you just you're, you're in the classroom and learn how things work. Um, but um, in the second year, in the third year, you go out on the clinical f floors and just seeing all these people that were just chronically managed with drug therapy mm -hmm. that just never got well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the thing that my that was most interesting about my grandfather's course was just you know going on a few house calls with him delivering a baby that was pretty cool i didn't get to watch it at the time but i was just kind of there mm -hmm. it was kind of neat um and then my my father went into obgyn and i went to medical school saying not going to do that no <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that and you know, I, I, in the first rotation, it was like just the first time I delivered a baby and just watching and all, it was like, oh, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. And, and I realized it was, it was really all acute intervention and in dealing with well people. It just kind of took that chronic illness part all the way out. Mm -hmm. So I went into it, but, um, the, the hard thing is, you know, and, and, and I went with the idea, I'm going to get the best training that I can and go to a small town in North Carolina like my grandfather. So I went to a coastal town, not the same one, but one nearby, and uh, practiced in a small hospital and did some really innovative things um, there. But um, the downside of it was it, it was a small group, and at that time I was doing call every second to third night mm -hmm. and every second to third weekend. You know, you'd start call on Friday morning and you'd give it up Monday morning. Wow. And a lot of that time I may have gotten two or three hours of sleep a night. Um, and that went on for 20 years and just, you know, not, not holding to the health habits that I promoted to my patients and being sleep deprived, you know, mm -hmm. but it, it was just, there was a lot of crazy conclusions, assumptions, misinformation. And so this was through the 90s. And somehow people were questioning the value of sleep. Mm. You know, do we really, really need to sleep? You know, and there were people out there going, you know, we can get it down to four hours of deep sleep. That's all we really need. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd, I'd be on call, get two hours of sleep and go through, charge through the next day, push through it, get maybe six hours the next night and right back at it the next day. And I could do it when I was in my 30s. Mm -hmm. But by the time I hit my late 40s, it all caught up with me and I crashed really badly. Mm -hmm. mm. What do you, Was there a specific catalyst to that crash? A moment, a time, something that happened? Or was it something like, was it you simply woke up someday? one day and you were like, wow, I, I feel like I just got hit by a train. Or was it something you started noticing over time? It, it gra gradually worse, mm -hmm. but there was a specific two-week event. So when, you're, when I was younger, I could 
not sleep for 36 hours, whatever. I mean, I can remember times in my training when I went 36 hours straight with no sleep um, and then did emergency C-sections at the end of that. So, um, but as I got into my 40s, I lost the ability to sleep and recover when I wasn't on call. My brain would just be too agitated and I couldn't turn it off. Mm -hmm. And there was a snafu in the schedule. So, you know, the solution was, well, we need to get a bigger group. So we got like five people in the group, which meant more and more patients. So my call started getting better, but there was this snap, but my sleep was getting worse and worse. And there was this snafu on the schedule where... I ended up being on call every other night for two weeks and the calls were all bad. I didn't get any sleep, but I wasn't getting any recovery sleep in between. And I just about crashed and I, uh, you know, went to physicians. I had been up until that point. I was also always very frugal with um, sleeping pills, pain pills, things like that. But it's like, you know, I got, I got to do something. So he gave me a sleeping pill to just take when I was not on call so I could get recovery sleep and found out how bad that was because <laughs> in about a year it stopped working and that I had to stop doing OB call. And um, that kind of precipitated the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Aside from your lack of sleep, what else were you noticing Um going on with your just overall health what were there other symptoms you were experiencing or was it just this um really intense fatigue like what did that look like name the symptoms of fibromyalgia chronic fatigue chronic lyme disease i had them all Mm -hmm. Uh, brain fog poor sleep uh fatigue feeling flu like aches and pains joint pain um, heart issues big heart issues Mm, Um, like palpitations irregularity like what were what were those pvcs um heart skip beats every second to third beats and chronic chest pain ended up with a cardiac cath um the doctor said well we can give you something to regulate the beats but we don't really have anything else wow and that's it and what that's was, when I said, you know, I think I'm done. I'm going to have to find something else. With your career, you meant? Well, with with get, uh, another course of action course because of action. conventional therapy just wasn't helping me. The drugs just weren't doing anything mm. except locking me in place. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask um, because we we have we know we have family member who have walked through similar circumstances but there's so many people who I'm sure are listening who also have walked through that I can imagine there's just a lot of fear when you yourself are experiencing these wild set of symptoms and no one can kind of put language to it especially though I'm thinking of you as a physician someone who you know understands human physiology someone who like went through school and training and was their whole job was to understand the human body how did you process having these big question marks of what was going on with you? And now this system that you had operated in couldn't help you any longer. You know, was there like a bit of um, some emotional turmoil going through, going on during that time? I'm so curious how you processed that. You know, know, it's been um, 
about 15 years ago that I went through this. So I honestly haven't told this story in a while. Um, it gets told in brief, but, you know, some of the anxiety and fear and frustration um, and realizing that all the things that I learned and the system that I believed in really had very, very little capacity to actually help me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and what's more, I mean, the, the thing is, and, and, you know, I had been there and it's human nature. Um, when somebody comes in with everything in their body falling apart and you have nothing that to help them with, and you know that, mm-hmm. you tend to marginalize that person. You really don't want to see them. They're going to take a lot of your time. You know, doctors like something, you know, that's why I went into OBGYN. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you've got pain in the right side. You've got bleeding. The pregnancy test is positive. It's probably a tubal pregnancy. Let's get you to the OR and fix that thing right now. Mm-hmm. Somebody walks in with brain fog, fatigue, heart issues, joint issues, brain fog, just on and on and on and on. And they're really upset. Yeah, it's frustrating for doctors. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. And they, you know, and your, your training really does nothing to prepare you for that person. Yeah. So the deal is, that's a lot of people. In fact, that's probably most of the people that a lot of chronic uh, of of uh, primary care physicians are seeing right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people walking around with exactly those symptoms that don't really fit a diagnosis. They're not sick enough to have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I have a theory that I've been workshopping with a number of other leaders and friends of mine that I think applies here. And I'd really be curious to hear your thoughts on it. And it's this idea that there's a lot of fields in the world where mastery is a component of their profession, right? And I, there's not very many people in the world beyond a doctor that needs to master something, right? You were, you were going to learn mm-hmm. everything you can about uh, pregnancy and C-sections and you, you, all the tools and instruments and terminologies and you know blood pressure. And there's, there's so much that you have to remember to master that profession, to be good at that thing. And oftentimes mastery and leadership or, or um, thinking outside the box or like th- those, those two concepts oftentimes are at odds with one another. And it's, it's, it's classic when you see somebody that's uh, an engineer that they, they know their process, how to build this thing, they do it perfectly. And then one day it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, that, you know, what do I do? It's, it's mm-hmm. chaos, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd just be curious if what your thoughts in the medical world when it comes to things that we're not prepared for. You, you said that the training just didn't prepare you for those or prepare them or you or whoever for those sorts of patients. Um, with that uh, idea of mastery versus leadership and, and, and problem solving, is, is, does that ring a bell at all? Is that, do you resonate with that? Or you know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that is a big part of our system right now. And it, one thing you have to understand that, you know, with I, maybe me as a person or, or how I grew up or whatever, 
that I tend to be an outside the box thinker. Mm -hmm. And when I reached the point where I said, okay, the conventional medical system isn't going to help me, it was almost a relief. It was almost to say, okay, you can go in and look for something different. Um, So I've always been that way um, in, in my profession. And when I went through training and when I practiced, there was room for outside the box thinking. That has just about gone with managed care, insurance companies, with pharmaceuticals dictating the, uh, the education process. It's all by the book now. Yeah. And if people vary from the book, um, they could potentially lose their job, lose their license. So it is really frowned on. Um, which is very unfortunate. In other words, doctors are told are taught not to think logically. Interesting. Um, and when I practiced, there was less of that. And I did things that were outside the, the box um, and actually saved several lives doing things that are outside the box or doing things that are, weren't quite the standard. Yeah. Um, I, on this little hospital in North Carolina, was one of the probably one of the first doctors to take an appendix out through a laparoscope, mm-hmm. um, a non-invasive procedure instead of opening them up mm-hmm. um, because I built on skills and it wasn't the standard, but it's like, well, you know, let's push the envelope. And we did it very, very carefully. We, you know, I knew that I could achieve it and we followed the patients very closely. So sometimes you do things that are a little outside the box because it's the right thing to do for that situation because the fixed situation doesn't fit the box. But that is less and less, that's more and more difficult to do as we've gone through time. It's interesting because Um, innovation in different fields of business, medical, government is really stifled when you train people not to think critically and it it begs the question and and maybe we none of us here have an answer for it but how is how is the medical industry innovating (laughs) if if they're telling all the doctors people that are trained that are on the front line seeing the patients to do everything by the book how is the book ever going to improve yeah exactly yeah well they would say there's a lot of innovation um you know and um and you hear about it, you know. I mean, I I heard in a newsline the other day that you know they have reduced the cancer rate, uh, the death rate from cran- cancer, mm-hmm. uh, greater than ever before. Fewer people are dying of cancer than ever before, mm-hmm. right? So we've innovated that. What we've innovated is the drug therapies. So we've made the drug therapies more precise so that we can uh, reduce the risk of someone dying from a variety of different kinds of cancers. And and so so we're innovating, um, which is great. Um, It's also very expensive. It's also very debilitating to the person and generally puts them at risk of other illnesses. And here's the headline that I saw exactly on that same day that said, cancer is now a worldwide epidemic. We're seeing more cases of cancer ever before in the history of humans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at that and go, okay, there's something wrong here. Mm -hmm. 
We're, we're treating cancer better, but we're not preventing it. People, mm. More people are getting sick. Six out of 10 Americans are chronically ill mm-hmm. and have to have ongoing medical therapy. Six out of 10 people. It's insane. It's and think of all the children too. I just, I know so many yep. kids and I think of my kids' kids, you know, in the future, the future generations. Something yep. that I was going to say when, as you're speaking, I'm so happy you said that second um, headline is, you know, my first question would be, that's great that we're helping people survive with after their diagnosis. How do we even stop this cancer train in the first place? Right. And so I think not to answer your question, Joey, but maybe to speak on it, I think there's just a difference of, of goal outcomes. I think the medical system's outcome, honestly, maybe I should say the pharmaceutical is to have repeat customers in the term in terms of, hey, we have people taking our drugs, consuming them, they're coming back all the time, and we're helping them stay alive. That might be their goal. Mm-hmm. Whereas my goal is yep. to, I, I'm not on any pharmaceutical medication. I have zero plans to ever be on any pharmaceutical com- um, medication long term. I just... I want to eat real food. I want to have a a lifestyle that supports my overall health. And I don't want to be a a product of that system. Those, my, my goals are very different from probably the people writing the book. Right. And so it's just a difference of, and that that can sound like conspiracy, right? Like the people that are creating these protocols. I think that there's well in intended um, mission behind some of this. But I also think you can have a completely different set of goals that doesn't truly get to the issue. One of those being, how do we help cancer survivors live longer? And, and there's there's always this, and you see this in business and, and, and in the medical field from an outsider looking in. So again, speaking as an outsider looking in, this this constant search for the unicorn, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I want to I want to invent the unicorn thing that fixes X Y Z, and then there happens to be a benefit for me if I figure that out because now I'm rich, right? <laughs> and so if I, if I create the unicorn uh, for cancer where, hey, you're diagnosed with cancer, you take this pill, you survive cancer. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, and, and so my guess is, is that the research and the innovation that is being done, like you just said, might be positioned in a way that is not positioned towards the prevention that... Uh, Dr. Rawls is, is uh, discussing. So anyways, let's, let's get back on track here. So we, we're growing up, we're, we're fishing, we're going to um, house calls with our grandfather. We went, we go through school, we become an OBGYN and you did this for 20 years, mm-hmm. Yeah, 20 years. And so I, I can't imagine all the stories that, that, that happened throughout that um, in this time or um, are, are you married? Do you have, you know, did you have kids, anything like that? Oh, oh yeah, we did. We did all that. I, got um, married um, right after college. Um, My wife and I met at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and she was finishing up her last year. I went on to medical school. We got married that second year, and uh, she, she is actually brighter than I am. Um, but decided instead of going to medicine, she would do a career in biology mm-hmm. as an instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did high school first and later community college, um, and has had a really wonderful career uh, teaching. 
Um, but uh, so I finished medical school, went into OBGYN, and we decided to have a couple of kids. We had my first child in my first year, so I was right in the middle of delivering babies where we had this this first child. Mm. Wow. But um, and then two years later, we had another one, mm-hmm. and I actually delivered that one, Aww. which was kind of cool That's that I sweet. got to deliver my own child. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, crazy times for sure. So you have two kids, and. Yes. Well, what were you going to continue? No, 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 no. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I just no. totally took your role. Go You're ahead. always the one that's keeping us on track. Um, you have two kids. How old were, so at what time frame, right? Between there and your kind of late forties situation where you didn't sleep for two straight weeks and your body kind of said, Hey, uh, Bill, we need to. Well, yeah, they this. were in, in college or I, I think my daughter was out of college. Okay. Okay. So point. you had them really yeah. early. Yeah. So, okay. I'm getting the timeline yeah. now. So fa- fast forward a few years. Mm-hmm. Just a few years, right? You're, you're told children's childhood. I love that. Um, and so I know we hinted at it. I don't actually know that you ever said the words Lyme disease, but I know that a lot of your first book in a lot of your early work as you transitioned out of this traditional medical model was specific to Lyme disease. And so if you want to give us a quick rundown on kind of your understanding of that, even at the bacterial level, I mean, go as deep as you'd like. Lyme disease happens to have come up in several of our previous podcasts. A couple of people we've interviewed have dealt with it before. We have, like I said before, we have family members who have Paul, dealt right? with it. Yeah. Paul oh, yeah. Pasturebird had Lyme disease. Um, so it's, it's, you know, people don't talk about it, but it's everywhere, right? So if you could shed it some is, light. Isn't it? Yeah, shed some light on Lyme disease for us and maybe walk us through how you discovered and sort of put together your early protocols for people after you kind of got yourself into a good space. So how deep do you want to go? Oh, Because I, I can take you places with Lyme disease. That <laughs> let's go. Let's just buckle about. up. Let's buckle up right now and let's go there. Well, hold on. So, I want to hear right? it. Well, but, so you had your own journey through Lyme disease, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Well, let's start there. Let's start there. What, what um, you, were, you weren't feeling well and let's, let's start there. Yeah. I had total body failure, right? Mm-hmm. And... But I didn't have symptoms that were specific to other diagnoses, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a tremor and a head bob. I was entertaining, you know, do I have Parkinson's? Mm-hmm. Am I developing Parkinson's mm-hmm. at age 48, mm-hmm. 49? Yeah. Uh, do I have MS? You know, I had tingling, weird neurological sensations. Um, but none of those things really were enough to define it as a diagnosis. And what I can tell you is virtually everybody that ends up identifying with chronic Lyme disease goes through exactly this same process. Mm -hmm. And I finally, not, you know, having a current tick bite, um, I, you know, the only diagnosis that really fit was fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. and Quite frankly, what it you know when you look at diagnoses, it's it's very artificial, and the biggest incentive to get a diagnosis right now is that's how the doctor gets paid. You have to put down a diagnostic code to get paid for seeing the patient. Hmm. Um, so basically, fibromyalgia is almost like a wastebasket term to to fit to people when they can't fit them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. 
It's just a, you know, a collection of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And there are definite, well-defined criteria for fibromyalgia, um, which I think are artificial and pretty worthless. But um, there was actually a study showing that 70% of people that were defined by the, as fibromyalgia by the medical profession don't fit the criteria. Mm. So, yeah, it just shows you how weird the whole thing is. Um, but there is no treatment for fibromyalgia, and it's considered idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. It just happens. You are just unlucky. Mm. And so we can give you drugs to ease the symptoms, which I had tried, and they were terrible, or you can just live with it. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not going to get better. You're going to live with this your whole life. Um, and you're going to get worse, too. Um, nobody wants that, right? No. So if you can get a diagnosis for a microbe like Lyme disease, mm -hmm. wow, that might mean you could be cured. So I can tell you, anybody out there that has a diagnosis of fibromyalgia they're being tested for Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. And the only difference between somebody with chronic Lyme disease and fibromyalgia, in my opinion, is the person with chronic Lyme disease has figured out how to get a positive test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you want to talk about that? Because I know the testing with Lyme disease is incredibly difficult. Um, there's blood Correct. tests. There's there's the Western blot. There's several um, ways that yeah. you can either confirm or deny and even with the denial of a test I think people are still stuck kind of assuming that that's what they have is Lyme and so right. talk to us about the testing of Lyme disease because we know that you know any kind of diagnostic testing isn't perfect but we have a hard time admitting that sometimes especially in the chronic illness space so tell us a little bit about that yeah. well it is challenging because you have to consider that the testing is designed for acute Lyme disease, mm -hmm. right? By the time somebody defines themselves as chronic Lyme disease, months or years after the potential tick bite, um, those bacteria are well integrated into their system and the testing is really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of people with fibromyalgia walking around with Borrelia in their system. Mm -hmm. um, but guess what? There are a lot of people who don't have any symptoms that are walking around with Borrelia in their system. Mm -hmm. You too may be of those those people if you've ever had tick bites. Mm -hmm. And Borrelia, and that's the deal. Do you want to? I know it's a spirochete, right? It's a bacteria that right. kind of has an ability to, like, wedge its way into our tissues. Right? We call them stealth infections because we, at some point, you can't see them in the blood. Um, Borrelia comes from ticks that are infected with Borrelia, am I understanding right. that correctly? So if you get a tick bite, that tick happened to be positive, which you can actually get your ticks tested if you save them. And then that bacteria transfers into our tissues. And sometimes, like you said, causes a storm. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. How would one know? Can we, can we see that bacteria in a blood test if it's beyond a certain point? You're saying no, probably not. It's hard to find. Mm -hmm. uh, testing is getting better, but here's the deal. Um, there are a lot of things we don't know about. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing my book on Lyme disease, there were 12 species of Borrelia 
identified worldwide mm-hmm. that could cause Lyme disease. That's up to 21 now. Wow. Um, so, you know, every few years we discover new bacteria. And anybody that's struggling with chronic Lyme disease will tell you that it's, uh, there are also co-infections. Mm-hmm. There's Bartonella and Bilibera and, and Babesia and Anaplasma. And everybody has reactivation of Epstein-Barr and all mm-hmm. these other viruses. And so it's not quite as cut and dry. Mm-hmm. And even the tick thing isn't cut and dry. Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's a lot of things out there that we that are there that we don't know about yet. Um, and second, there are probably a lot of potential pathogens carried by chicks that are not being recognized as causing illness yet. Mm-hmm. So we get this idea that, well, either a tick is carrying the bacteria that causes Lyme disease or it's not. And if it's not, it's okay. Mm-hmm. They found that one tick species carried over 237 different families, genera of bacteria, Mm -hmm. many of which can infect vertebrates. Wow. Um, And you would expect that because bacteria, their job is moving from host to host. Mm -hmm. And ticks are just nature's perfect vector, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're sneaky and they sit on there for a long time. But here's Mm -hmm. the deal. The things that are most threatening to us are the things that humans have never been exposed to, all right? The human immune system evolved over repetitive exposure to common microbes in our environment. Mm -hmm. So it's less about the microbe, the bacteria, virus, protozoa, whatever, than it is whether our immune system has built-in immunity to that thing. Mm Ebola virus is devastating because humans have rarely ever been exposed to it. The mortality is 60%. Mm. COVID is new because it skipped over from an animal host, but we are exposed to a lot of other different kinds of coronaviruses, so it's not nearly as bad. It turns out the mortality ended up being about 1%. Wow. Because we are exposed to so, have been exposed to mm-hmm. so many of these things. Mm-hmm. So you look at the mortality associated with Borrelia and Lyme disease for acute infection. All right. Now I'm not saying that people don't die of complications of chronic Lyme disease later, but acute infection, the incidence of death from Borrelia is nearly zero. Mm -hmm. So what that tells you is it's not highly virulent. Humans, you know, think about it. Humans have been bitten bitten by ticks since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. We're not being bitten by more ticks. We're getting bitten by fewer ticks. People used to live outdoors, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and they spent all their time outdoors and they were continually being bitten by ticks and they were getting these microbes. Mm -hmm. And so, and our ancient ancestors, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 years back, this is an ancient bacteria. All the tick-borne microbes are ancient. Mm -hmm. So acute Lyme disease probably isn't as common as you might think. So when I, you know, I've interviewed thousands of people with chronic Lyme disease who are identified with chronic Lyme disease. 
95% of the people that I've talked to do not remember an acute infection and do not become ill at the time of the tick bite. Mm -hmm. And typically it's later. Everybody has a perfect storm. My perfect storm was 20 years of no sleep with that two-week event. Mm -hmm. yeah. For so many other people, it's... You know, my 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 house burned down, my business went went bankrupt, or my wife left me and ran off with another person. You know, and all of these things, or had some kind of a trauma mm -hmm. that laid put me in the hospital for a month, and after that point, I never got better. Mm -hmm. So that's more typically what um, is happening with chronic Lyme disease. I'm glad you mentioned that we've been in and around this for so long because I think about that with mold toxicity as well. I'm like, we didn't start out in these perfectly, you know, sealed homes where it never rained on wood and surfaces. And, you know, we've been around mold a long time, maybe perhaps different types of mold. I don't know. I'm not an expert. But I think about that with Lyme, too. You know, it is such a mysterious illness. And I think if you look in the media and you can see there's some celebrities that have maybe brought some light to it, which I think can be a good thing. But if you look around, it can kind of seem like, wow, a lot of people are getting sick with this. You know, is this a new thing? Interesting, isn't it? And how do you, yeah, how do you combat that with the knowledge and understanding that these microbes have been around for forever? You know, it must be something else changing. And I know one thing I wanted to cover with you is this whole germ theory versus terrain theory. The idea that it's just a right. microbe coming in and causing illness versus there being maybe a metabolic breakdown at the cellular level that allows for our bodies to kind of come under siege when we're introduced with something. So I would love to hear your opinion on that. Obviously, I am just a mom and a, you know, lay person. I don't know any of the correct terminology, but I really love this topic because I think it helps shape our understanding of our body's healing capacity. So please, Dr. Bill, inform us on your take on this whole these All right. combative theories. Now we're getting to the heart of it, and we're actually getting to the heart of chronic illness. Yes. And we're picking up where we left off just a few minutes ago. Where we go wrong with chronic illness is we don't ask the right questions. Mm. And with chronic illness, we ask, how can we fix this? What drugs or surgery or medical therapies can we use to fix the symptoms so that the person isn't suffering. Mm -hmm. And what we don't ask is, why is this person ill? Mm. Why is this person sick? Mm -hmm. And that's the departure that I made a long time ago, is starting to ask that question, why? In my case, why am I sick? Um, you know, I'm looking at these microbes, but... Are they the problem, you know? And and why 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 don't antibiotics help people? You know, why why are antibiotics not fixing people if it's just a bacterial infection? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what really carried me down to the cellular level. And and we're we're not going to go too deeply into that, but just asking what's going on inside the body. So when you ask why someone is ill, it puts you on a completely different playing field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my consultations with people, often I'm going all the way back to their childhood 
and looking at how they were born, uh, what their condition was around the time that they were growing up. You know, did they have unusual trauma, antibiotic use, and, and carrying that all the way through, trying to paint a picture of what is going on inside that person's body mm -hmm. that allowed them to become ill. And so that, you know, the, the, the rather simple question of it, it, answer is that when you look at all chronic illness and start looking at that, you can start relating it back to categories of factors. And at the cellular level, you know, we're basically built of cells. Mm -hmm. um, everything that happens in the body is a function of cells, uh, whether that's your heart beating or your brain firing impulses or your thyroid producing hormone. It's all done by cells. And if you feel great, it's because all the cells in your body are getting everything they need to function. Mm -hmm. If you're not, symptoms are related to cellular health. So if your cells are stressed, you're going to find out, you, you know, you're going to, to show that. So if you have joint pain, it's, it's cells in your joints that are stressed. If you have heart dysfunction, your, your cells in your heart are, st are stressed or injured. If you have brain fog, the cells in your brain are being affected. Mm -hmm. If you have total body fatigue, every cell in your body is being stressed. Mm -hmm. Something's going on. So when you ask what stresses it, you can bring it down to five categories of things. And you know, we'll, we'll go through them pretty quickly and then we can come back to it. Um, diet is a huge one. You know, you, your cells have to have the right nutrients to function. Mm -hmm. Toxic environment. This is a huge one. And, and I think we're going to see this more and more prevalent. Um, you know, in use of petrochemicals, we have truly saturated our world full of unnatural organic chemicals that basically poison our cells. Mm -hmm. they, they interfere with cellular function, so cells can't function as well, so they become stressed. Uh, there are over 200,000 different chemicals in the environment today that weren't here 100 years ago. 200,000? Um, yeah. 200,000 yeah. chemicals that are here today that were not here 100 years ago. Correct. That's yeah. Some more prevalent than others, yeah, but there's we a talk, lot of stuff out there. Are we talking about like household cleaners, bleach? Like, I mean, what, what chemicals are we talking about? Everywhere you look, we're using uh, petroleum, right? Yeah. So petroleum, when I think petroleum, I think of that ends up being plastic, right? So every different type of uh, material made from plastics or any sort of how much plastic is around you right now okay I got, i'm tracking that uh, yeah i mean okay so here's an interesting way to think about it uh, and we'll, we'll get we'll get back to that list of five but here's an interesting way to think about it so your body is your cells are made of organic molecules mm -hmm. organic molecules are carbohydrates fats amino acids vitamins anything with carbon hydrogen and basically comes from a plant source mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and everything living is made of organic molecules 
everything living is food for something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything is, is being eaten. Plants are the food foundation for everything. They're taking the sun, pulling carbon dioxide out, and making it into organic molecules. Mm -hmm. And organic molecules um, are, you know, we, we are, we're used to those. Our body functions with those things, right? So petroleum and coal come from plant matter or algae that became... Uh, compressed inside the earth, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So hundreds of thousands of years took those organic molecules and distorted them into forms that are not compatible with biological life anymore. In other words, the molecules are so screwed up and distorted that when, when you fit them into organic living things... It messes up the, the the structure. They can't use them. It, you know, it, it combines in. It sticks in there with our other stuff, but it inhibits the the natural, the normal functioning molecules. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, if you went back and ate the plant matter that would become petroleum, if you went back several million years and ate that stuff, probably actually be pretty good for you. Mm -hmm. But that millions of years has changed it. And with coal, with plant matter, not only did you have the distortion of the molecules, you have heavy metals, mercury, cadmium, other heavy metals embedded into that organic molecule. Uh, so when you burn coal, you dump a lot of mercury and other heavy metals out into the atmosphere that aren't supposed to be there, mm. that, were, uh, that were contained inside the Earth's crust. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing it like crazy for the past several hundred years. So we have mercury out in fish out in the ocean because those things move up the food chain. Mm -hmm. Bigger the animal, the more it gets concentrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like yeah. Um, so we're using all this stuff. So all, I, everything that's coming out of our tailpipes and all the plastics and everything that we're dumping into the environment isn't really compatible with biological life. Because um, I, I like this explanation. I'm glad you're saying this because I've often thought in my um, less educated brain that like, you know, everything had to come from the earth. Everything had to be of natural origin, right? At some point. But what you're saying is yeah. the time, the pressure, the the um, immense destructuring of these organic matters. And now we're sort of like time traveling and tapping into those reservoirs and the the stuff that maybe back then was a part of natural biological life no longer has a place in this current modern day the folks living on the surface of the right. earth and so right. it's the mixing of time periods it's the taking something that once was natural but has compressed and decomposed over time and then now it's leaching things into our food system and our modern day bodies cannot process it am i understanding that correctly well it, it it's the volume of it, too. I mean, we're, we're just using so much of it. You know, when I was born, there were 3 billion people on the earth. Mm -hmm. um, now there are 7.8 billion, and they all want to drive cars. Yeah. And they want all want to have the same comfortable living situations that we do. And yeah. they probably deserve it. But petroleum powers that. And yeah. the price of petroleum is pollution. Mm, that's so true. I didn't think so, about that. Okay, so back to our five... You're saying okay, that's two. <laughs> um, and there's some natural things. You you know, you mentioned just our 
tightly sealed houses with with air with it, with that we put heat and moisture in, they grow mold. Yeah. Um, uh, up in your area, especially where people have basements, oh, yeah. it's a lot higher rate of it than some other places in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, third on the list is just emotional stress and not sleeping, mm-hmm. you know. That's what got me the very most is just pushing that stress button and not getting adequate sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you put your cells on high alert, they don't have time to recover. So our cells work hard, right? I mean, all of our cells have a job. They're like really, they're like microscopic machines and every cell has a job and they're working all day long. And if you, and so that downtime at night is when your cells recover. So cellular recovery is what healing is all about. Mm-hmm. That's what's so remarkable about living organisms and, and our bodies is what healing is, is the ability of our cells to recover from being stressed or injured and regenerate new cells. That's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So what's happening in chronic illness is our cells aren't having the ability to, to you know, the, those stresses are ongoing, so our cells can't recover. Yeah. So our cells say, stay chronically stressed. So we stay sick. Mm-hmm. Drugs don't fix that. Drugs do nothing to inhibit cellular stress. Zero. That's really important. So people typically don't get well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, not sleeping, chronic stress, pushing that uh, f- fire alarm all the time. Uh, fourth category is physical factors. And in that, I put everything from trauma to excessive physical stress, which used to be an issue when people were working in factories for 10 or 12 hours a day. They wore their bodies out. Mm-hmm. Today, we're sedentary. The thing that's so important about exercise is moving blood. So your cells need constant flow of fluid that comes from the bloodstream to to deliver nutrients and wash away toxic substances. And if we're sedentary, that doesn't happen and our tissues become congested with dead cells and debris and microbes and junk and cells don't get a perfusion of the nutrients and waste removal that, that they need. And then the fifth category, which we've touched on a little bit already, is microbes, mm. which is big. Mm-hmm. And we all think about microbes that we get as infections. We're all, you know, we're all on COVID right now, and we think about influenza and these acute infections. But here's where my journey has carried me and where I am now is that we constantly have an influx of microbes in our body from the day we were born, from putting things in our mouths, from being scratched and bitten by pets, from being bitten by, by uh, uh, ticks and mosquitoes and other kinds of things. Um, so we have these things, and sometimes we know about it. Sometimes we feel an infection, but sometimes it's a low-grade thing that we don't even know about. Mm-hmm. So this is constantly happening throughout our lifetimes. So, but where my current research, this is only like in the past three or four years. And the reason I wrote this current book is the idea, this emerging evidence that it's not just things we get as infections, that bacteria from our gut trickle across into our bloodstream 
bacteria from our skin trickle across into our bloodstream, from our sinuses. And these things travel in the bloodstream and they travel in our, into our tissues. And they interestingly can become dormant. So when you look at the Lyme microbes or any really any other microbes that we're talking about, bacteria and viruses alike, mm -hmm. they're all intracellular. And what that means is, is they can enter a cell and basically take on a different personality. But what recent emerging science is showing is that a lot of times what happens is if you, you know, all these things you're picking up through life, if your cells are healthy, these things become dormant in your tissues. They become dormant in your cells. Mm. So scientists are starting to refer to this as the dormant microbiome. Mm. And they're finding that our blood and our tissues aren't sterile. That we actually do have bacteria that, that are dormant inside our red blood cells, inside our white blood cells, in our bloodstream, in our brain, in our tissues throughout our body. Not in high concentrations. And you have to remember that, that bacteria like uh, 100 to 1,000 times smaller than your cells. So it's not all your cells, but it's some cells. Mm -hmm. Sometimes scientists are even suggesting that there might even be a symbiotic relationship that some of some may possibly our cells need some of these things. Mm -hmm. So this microbe relationship we have is much more complex than anyone ever imagined. So if you're healthy and your cells are healthy, then you don't have symptoms. Mm. Your microbes are dormant. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens in chronic Lyme disease. But I also think that's what happens in Parkinson's and dementia and auto autoimmune illnesses mm -hmm. and many cardiovascular diseases and cancers mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. So this idea, so in fact, if you go to PubMed and search dormant microbiome, you'll pull up a study that a group of researchers detailed the mechanisms that possibly these dormant microbes could be become reactivated and cause different illnesses, mm -hmm. different chronic illnesses. So that's where I am with the whole thing and looking at it and going, well, maybe chronic Lyme disease, what we're looking at here is a model for all of chronic illness and we better darn pay attention because there are no drugs that treat this. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what's your take on whether or not Borrelia can pass from mother to child? I think it's possible. I think it happens. Um, you know, it, it, all bacteria have preferred routes of travel, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's the tale of two spirochetes. So one spirochete prefers sexual transmission, and that's what it specializes in. Mm -hmm. And syphilis readily is transmitted by sexual transmission and readily crosses uh, the, the, the placenta and uterus. Um, whereas uh, Borrelia, the other spirochete, really prefers to travel by ticks. And so you don't find it in seminal fluid and vaginal fluid nearly as much as you were with syphilis or other tra sexually transmitted illnesses. Mm -hmm. But yeah. They're all, all bacteria, all microbes are opportunists. Mm -hmm. They're going to get they're going to travel any way they can. 
And yes, this suggestion that possibly we have things, you know, they have found that um, there are even suggestions that the placenta has its own microbiome. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, there are suggestions that things can pass. So inherited diseases, I've always wondered about this. You know, we have these things that run in families that there's not really, you know, they haven't found a definite genetic reason why it's being passed. And I've been thinking for a long time, maybe it's the microbes yeah. that are passing. Maybe it's it's common microbes that are being circulated within families and passed possibly even through generations. Mm-hmm. It's hard to prove, but, you know, these things, when you start applying this logic to the manifestations of chronic illness starts making a lot of sense, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So we all pick up stuff, but we pick up different stuff. All of us have unique bacteria, microbial makeup in our bodies, in our guts, but yeah, it's looking like possibly even in our tissues. Um, And this idea that, yeah, you drink soft drinks your whole life and eat all this processed food and stay stressed and don't sleep and don't get exercise and make your cells really unhealthy, then they start to erupt. Mm -hmm. And they erupt in different ways depending on what kind of microbes you have. So we end up with a lot of different illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw on social media the other day, someone shared a a quote. I think it was from Bashamp, who was sort of like Louis Pasteur's um, counterpart. They had opposite. uh, He was really the author of terrain theory, right? And so they had very opposite worldviews. And it said something like, you don't get sickness, you build sickness. And it's in terms of like, there's so many other things that go into you becoming symptomatic. It's not just like yep. all of a sudden, bam, I was introduced to this one thing. And it. so I, I think even just hearing that again in that way helps me understand, one, I'm not a victim to the microbes around me. I think I, I, I agree with you. I think some, well, we know microbes are incredibly beneficial. We have tons in our body that actually help us do a number of things and we need them in our soil. Sure. We need biodiversity, but we also know that there's, you know, pathogenic things that we can come in contact with that can take us under if and when our body is not positioned to maybe metabolize that correctly. And so it's just helpful to hear, especially you just reiterating that and kind of hearing, it's one of those things where it doesn't hurt to hear it over and over and over again, because we live in a society that is so terrified of the individual germ that we don't understand the larger impact of our lifestyle of our diet of our toxic environments i mean people go as far as denying the fact that we live in a toxic world they say what are you talking about we have better sanitation than we ever have well that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about like the the use of so many man-made synthetic chemicals and the disruption of our natural systems and we no longer build our houses with natural material or wear natural materials i mean we're just we're so far off from what we would have looked like 100, 200, you know, however many years ago. And it's just helpful for me to continue hearing that message of it's way more complex, but it's also a beautiful thing because we have an ability to have an active role in our health. And so we haven't even touched on this topic yet so far. And I'm, I'm honestly thankful because I'm glad of all the topics we've covered so far, but I know you discovered herbal remedies throughout your search because you're saying over and over again, pharmaceutical drugs did not work. 
And, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, people say, well, those are based off of herbs or those are based off of things in nature. Right. And so, again, that 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 um, understanding gets twisted. So please enlighten us. Tell us how you stumbled on this herbal path, how you use that to then get yourself well and then how you have been helping others on their journeys as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, first thing I'll wind up that other thought, though. It, you know, it, 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 I, I don't want people to think that I'm opposed to vaccines or, or therapies. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to respect that there are different microbes out there, and some of them are very threatening. Um, you know, and, and when you look at uh, before vaccines and antibiotics, a lot of people died of very virulent uh, bacteria and viruses like smallpox, mm-hmm. like cholera, like so many other things out there. And we have defenses against those things. But those are, min- are a min- minority of the total microbes that we're exposed to. So I think you have to put things in perspective that there are things out there that are really threatening. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely a place for vaccines. There's definitely a place for acute use of antibiotics for highly virulent bacteria that might invade our bodies. Um, but so, so, but there we're in that realm of acute illness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very important. Um, when we look at the concept of chronic illness and this chronic relationship we have with this larger microbiome, I think it's a different way of looking at it. And, you know, so we're, we're not, it's kind of apples and oranges in a way of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of difference of in acute infections with highly virulent microbes and then this, this chronic reactivation of this uh, tissue looks like we have tissue uh, microbiome. Still a lot of work that we have to do to prove that. The other thing I wanted to say too is, um, you know, we're, we're living in the best of the times and worst of the times at the same time in that um, we can thank petroleum for so many things. Um, all of our technology are made possible by the power, the energy that petroleum provides. And energy, do, and, and it has blessed us with the best food distribution system that the planet has ever known. Um, so there's so, so, so much good. There's so much that makes that, you know, that we owe to petroleum for, uh, you know, just living a wonderful life, being able to do what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm living in a, I'm sitting in a very comfortable, controlled environment house having a conversation with you folks in Ohio yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a hurricane a hundred miles south of yeah. me, you know, and the weather is terrible outside. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of good there, but I think the message is we have to balance the good and, and just look and go, all right, you know, there's a downside to this too. Let's be smart about it. You know, maybe it is time that we look start looking at some alternative energy sources and better management of all these plastics and use of plastics in our system and how we cultivate our food and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I just wanted to add that in. Oh, I love that. Um, so take us back to your discovery of herbs and, um, you know, it can be kind of a confusing topic. I think there's culinary herbs, there's medicinal herbs. 
the dosage, the um, sourcing, all of it can be, you know, confusing, honestly, to the consumer, to the sick person who is saying, okay, I can't take a pharmaceutical. You want me to take some dried up plants? (laughs) You know, it can sound a little out there. So, right. so yeah. tell us how you even thought to look at herbs. What What is behind that that can lead to, to folks healing at a cellular level? And then we can get into some of the specifics around different herbals that you enjoy using. Yeah, D- desperation and an open mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was I was in a situation I had to leave my obstetrics practice. I started my own practice because I didn't really have a diagnosis, so I couldn't um i couldn't declare disability so i started a medical practice which ended up being a financial stress in itself um i didn't have to take ob call but it was a lot of responsibility and it was hard um and so that locked me into place in this small town and i really didn't have the resources uh or uh or finances to go and chase therapies. And that ended up being a blessing. So if I couldn't figure it out and bring it to me, then I, you know, I, it just wasn't something that I could do. Mm-hmm. So all the, the kinds of kind of sometimes crazy theory, things that people do for chronic Lyme disease, they just weren't really an option for me. And so, but I, I looked at the science to go, you know, I, at that time I was thinking a little bit differently. I hadn't really come to evolve to this understanding of cellular health. But, you know, I was looking at this concept of why am I sick? And I made this transition. You know, I went from being uh, angry and frustrated and, you know, searching for the the physician that could fix me mm-hmm. and and help me out of desperation to all right what am i supposed to be learning here and how can i use that to help other people mm. and then i had purpose and so i started searching for things and it was a rational search to say all right you know, what, what's something that might have efficacy? You know, what's, what has been used in Lyme disease that people have actually improved on? What's the safety factor? You know, there are certain things that I excluded because they just, they're, they're just not safe. And what was the cost? I just, you know, I had a budget. I couldn't afford some of the crazy things that people do. Um, and herbs fit into that well. And quite frankly, in the beginning, it was like, yeah, okay. They're not expensive. I think the safety profile is pretty good. And here I'm reading on the internet that all these hundreds and thousands, sometimes thousands of people had gotten better with herbs and it's natural. Wow, that feels good. And I'm going to give this a try. And and a guy named Stephen Booner wrote a book called Healing Lyme about 2005, which was right in when I was in the middle of this. And it laid out this protocol of herbs, but it wasn't one herb, and it wasn't just your average-grade herbs that you might find in any health food store or grocery store. It was high-grade extracts, and it was a protocol. Um, And I said, you know, 
I'm just going to do this and see what happens. Mm -hmm. My wife thought I was crazy. I ordered all these bottles and all this stuff, and I was literally taking handfuls of capsules two or three times a day. And three months went by, and I started climbing out of the hole. And it was like, man, this is actually doing something. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming, well, it's killing the Borrelia microbe. Um, But then, you know, as that journey goes along, I'm going... No, 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 no. This is this is doing a lot more. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, drugs treat your symptoms. They suppress your symptom. As long as you're taking the drug, then your symptom is suppressed. Stop the drug, comes right back again mm-hmm. because it's not doing anything for cellular health. So all of my symptoms just started melting away. All of them. Mm-hmm. My mental capacity got better. Fatigue, that one was, that one took time. Um, heart, um, so a lot of these things, it was like a, a, a three to five year period that all of the symptoms went went away. And part of that is I'd get some better and I'd run out of the herbs and it's like, okay, you know, this is pretty good and I wouldn't take the herbs. And and I, then I would have some other kind of stress and I would be right back where I started and then I would order the herbs, start them all over again. You know, and finally I just reached a point that it was like, okay, I'm just going to keep taking the herbs. Yeah. And at that point, I kept getting better. and But sometimes I would leave, reach a little plateau, and then I'd just pull in another herb and, you know, and give myself a little boost. And I just kept doing that and doing that. And I've now been taking herbs continually for 15 years. Wow. Um, and it's been pretty amazing. What kind of herbs are we talking about? And, and maybe I don't know any of them, but... As a, as a chef, I'm just fascinated <laughs> to hear it. I know that we're not talking the same thing, but uh, I'd I be curious. I think there's some overlap. As there's some culinary that are also medicinal. What, ca- what kind of herbs are we working with? Don't think you're using John's wort. Yeah, it's interesting, cooking. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we'll get to specific herbs, but why don't we talk about what the herbs are actually doing? Yes, do it. please do. Okay. Um, so when I started studying you know, I studied all the world's herbal traditions, and they're just plants all over the world um, that are defined as herbs. Um, but all of that was observational. You know, it was pre-science, so it was really complex. So I started studying the science, and over the past 20 years, there's just been an explosion of research into what's going on inside the plants. So herbs are wild plants or plants in their natural state, all right? So, but there are also plants that just happen to mesh well with our biochemistry. Mm-hmm. So they're typically things that humans have been using for herbal therapy or possibly even before in our forage food diet for a very long time. So these things mesh well with us. It's like, you know, poison ivy is not something that someone would try twice. Yeah. Um, certain plants are poisonous. So when you look at what the plant is doing, the plant is putting out chemistry to protect its cells. It's solving problems. It's said that, that plants are some of the most sophisticated plant chemists on earth because all plants are solving problems with chemistry. Mm-hmm. So plants are putting out this wide spectrum of chemical substances that we call phytochemicals, plant chemicals. 
and they're using these chemicals to protect the plant's cells from all kinds of stress factors. Free radicals, radiation, toxic substances, uh, physical stress, maybe even a little emotional stress, you never know. And every microbe that you can possibly imagine. Everything living is food from something else. Plants are the food foundation for all life. Everything is trying to eat plants, including bacteria, fungi, insects, us. Um, but so the plant has to defend itself to a certain point. So it's, it's creating this robust chemistry. So all plants have antimicrobial properties, but it's different than a potent antibiotic in that it's more a balancing effect. So it's suppressing potential pathogens, but not disrupting normal flora. So that's something I noticed early on. I would take an antibiotics and two weeks later, my gut would be a mess. Yeah. Taking these herbs months, years, my gut just kept getting better mm -hmm. every day. So the plants have this balancing effect, but it's also you're getting chemistry of the plant uh, chemical messaging system that's coordinating all the cellular functions within the plant. So plants are multicellular organisms like we are. All those cellular functions have to be coordinated and they use chemical messengers that are very much like our hormones and neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. So all of this is going on in the plant. So when we take that plant that humans have defined as meshing well with our biochemistry, it boosts all of our defenses. We get antimicrobial enhancement. We get protection from free radicals. We get protection from toxic substances. So we get this really advanced cellular protection system that just boosts anything that our systems are already doing. And that, in a nutshell, is how herbs work, mm. which is really pretty remarkable. So plants, herbs are doing things. This complex photochemistry are doing things that, herb, that drugs can't do. So by, by doing this, when we take an herb, it, it protects ourselves and that reduces cellular stress. And when we reduce cellular stress, our cells can better defend themselves against microbes. The microbes that might be dormant there stay dormant. Mm -hmm. And we have less cellular turnover and all of these other things to balance our stress hormones and all of the other things that happens with the herbs, it's pretty remarkable. It is, in fact, there's, there's not much I know of that you can do a better job of protecting your cells than taking herbs. Mm -hmm. And when you're saying herbs, you're saying in capsule form. I mean, you can also get it in a tincture, right? What yep. what is the I'm so curious. There's been a lot of buzz on social media lately about essential oils and I know that that's a little bit different, but I know some people are like, "Oh yeah, I pop my, you know, clove essential oil into a capsule and I swallow that." Talk to us about the difference yeah. between uh, a, an extracted oil versus a whole herb approach. Yeah, it's all what the plant is using it for, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and this this is why it's it's probably you know popping a capsule full of with a, a full of clove oil is very very different than popping a capsule full of uh, say turmeric, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, 
The phytochemistry, what we're extracting from the plant that we define as an herbal preparation is this complex phytochemistry that the plant is using for cellular defense and regulatory functions for its cells, okay? An essential oil is a deterrent. That's it. Um, and it's actually toxic to cells, mm -hmm. okay? So what essential oils are, are you know, the, 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 the plant creates what are called little vacuoles, like a little bubble in the leaves in the stem, and it, it uh, fills them full of different kinds of essential oils. So what the oils are there for is a deterrent. They're, they're pretty strong insecticide. Mm -hmm. So and when an insect comes along and chomps on that plant, it releases that oil. It's very toxic to the insect. It's less toxic to us because we're a much larger animal and we process it differently, mm -hmm. all right? But it, it does have some toxicity to it, so the plant is actually walling that off from its cells. So what you're getting with an essential oil is very different than what you're getting from an herbal preparation. Mm -hmm. So an herbal preparation is more of the whole plant dried right and then how like what's the processing look like for that well you know there are a lot of different ways to take herbs and uh you you mentioned briefly that you use culinary herbs and that they have medicinal value yeah mm -hmm. they do mm -hmm. um that's just as good as any herb that we would define as a as a medicinal oil or a medicinal uh herb mm -hmm. So really, it comes down to how we've come to use them um, more than anything else. Mm. So when we started farming plants 10,000 years ago, we gave up our foraging past. Um, but you got to remember that before food, um, we had refrigeration, food spoiled pretty easily. So if you could add some natural plant substance in there to slow down the, the bacterial growth and act as an inhibitant, then it would keep the food longer. And that's functionally how the spice herbs and spices were primarily used, is to preserve food longer. And we developed a, a taste that we enjoy those things. So they had a taste that was favorable to us. So all of our herbs and spices we commonly use in cooking now. Yeah. Um, but they still are from plants in their wild state. Mm -hmm. So the difference in an herb and a food plant is a food has been cultivated to produce calories, whereas our herbs, whether culinary herbs or, wild, or, or, or medicinal herbs, are typically plants that are still in their wild state. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have calories. You would starve if you tried to survive off of mm -hmm. herbs. Yeah. So those culinary herbs, we just like the taste of them, <laughs> where things that ended up being defined as medicinal herbs are bitter and have a strong taste. We didn't really like them in our food, so we put them in a different category. All the medicinal herbs have just as many medicinal properties as any medicinal herb. Mm. All the culinary herbs have just as many medicinal. Um, I, I remember in your book, you had an illustration of maybe a wild carrot and the cultivated carrot. Is this ringing a bell? Yeah. And I, I've heard this before, and I think this is so interesting. Obviously, our modern-day orange carrot with the big green top is not how it's always been. And one thing you mentioned in your book is that this in the modern, perhaps you meant American diet, but I'd say worldwide diet, 
modern human existence, we're living off of a much different um, phytonutrient levels, right? Like we're not getting the same diversity of plant foods that we once maybe did when we were foraging more because we have these cultivated, you know, we have agriculture. We have um, these cultivated plants that we can recognize and know. And, and we teach kids about them in our children's curriculum. You know, this is a tomato. This is a potato. This is a carrot. Well, let's talk for a moment about maybe the difference in that early carrot, the difference in that wild food, these wild herbs versus our cultivated vegetation and some of the ways yeah. that the modern diet is lacking those the complex phytonutrient profile. Yeah. And, um, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when for hundreds of thousands of years, humans ate a forage food diet, you know, we went out and just, uh, collected the bounty of nature. We ate roots and stems and leaves and wild berries and, you know, whatever was available that might have calories. But quite frankly, it was really low calorie. You had to eat a lot of it to get enough food to, to survive. Um, Interestingly, it's it's thought that farming was an easier life, and we gave up foraging foraging because farming was better. And there's evidence that that's not actually the case. What was happening was uh, human populations very gradually over many thousands of years grew to the point in certain areas of the earth that they started outstripping the capacity of nature to provide forage food reliably. Mm -hmm. And that started happening most intensely in the Fertile Crescent about 10,000 years ago. So humans didn't, you know, it wasn't that they didn't like foraging or thought farming was better. They just were running out of food. Um, and so in the Fertile Crescent, they started farming wheat. And it turns out that um, once you start doing that, once you make that transition, you get stuck to it pretty fast because, you know, you have to be there to uh, plant the wheat, grow the wheat, watch out for it, harvest it, store it. And you can't just follow the seasons and follow the food with a nomadic lifestyle like humans did before that. Mm. So once we started locking into farming, um, that kind of locked people in place. But seeds are loaded with calories. Um, you know, when you look at seeds, though, they also have all kinds of deterrents um, mm -hmm. in them called lectins mm -hmm. that uh, made it difficult for humans to eat them. You know, you can't eat beans and grain without soaking them, uh, processing them, and cooking mm -hmm. them. And humans really didn't have the capacity to do that. But once they figured it out, they were able to produce more calories. More calories, more people. We've been growing more people ever since. Mm -hmm. And as our food production capacity has gone up, then you know we, our population has gone mm -hmm. up. So we became locked into civilizations at that point. And... Um, so grains in particular don't have those phytochemicals that other um, uh, other uh, uh, other foods mm -hmm. do. You know, you're you're getting the phytochemicals in the leaves and stems and roots. You're just not getting them in the seeds. 
getting them in berries but and fruit, but not not seeds very much at all, especially grains. Um, so they were leaving something behind, and as they did that, you know, it was kind of natural to bring along those culinary herbs just to naturally um, uh, uh, reincorporate some of those things that were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, so yeah, that food story is really interesting. But we've been doing grains predominantly ever since, yeah. and it's. Um, so one thing is a lot of people use the word phytonutrient and I try to get them to start using the word phytochemical mm, okay. because when you look at these chemicals, they're technically not nutrients. Mm. So what a nutrient is, is something that our cells need to function. Mm. So macronutrients like carbohydrates, fats, amino acids, you know, are used by the cell vitamins, minerals are used by the cell. So these are all used by cellular functions. So I tried to define nutrients as things that cells use. So when you look at herbs, they're not a good nutrient source and they're not a good calorie source. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're full of these phytochemicals that are protective. And very interestingly, when you look at, you know, taking herbs uh, like I do, and reinforce my cellular defenses with these herbs and reducing cellular stress, you reduce the nutrient demand of our cells. So when you think about it, when your cells are stressed, they're working harder, they're using more energy, they're using more nutrients. If you protect your cells from stress factors, they don't have to work as hard, there's less energy demand, and so the, the nutrient demand is actually lower. So taking herbs, uh, following good health habits, good diet, help reduce cellular stress, which decreases nutrient and energy demands that cells have. You get more bang for your buck when you're eating then, right? If your cells are performing at an optimal level. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. That's good. How how are you feeling over there, Joe? I'm so curious to hear. So your... I, I was gonna say we, we would love to still hear some examples of what some of these herbs are. He <laughs> wants specific. I'm dying. I... All right, <laughs> for sure. Um, well, there's a lot of stuff out there, um, but what I found is, you know, we've got all these complex traditions all over the world of all these different herbs, right? And what I found is there's a lot of stuff that grows in different places that's related. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite herbs is one of called Gotu Kola that oh, wow. I learned about. It's an, an herb from India. It's really great for your brain, has some anti-diabetic properties. It's one on my everyday list for herbs to take every day. Turns out that there is a related species that grows here in North Carolina and South Carolina. Wow. And uh, you look at rhodiola, another favorite herb of mine that's, uh, you hear a lot about it coming from, from uh, Siberia. Um, actually grows in Alaska, and they've found a close relative in the Appalachian wow. Mountains. Um, so interestingly, you know, you find a lot of similar plants around the world. And, you know, when you look at the science of how the chemistry works, you find that it's not as complicated as it might seem. You know, you don't have to know all of these herbal traditions and all about herbs. 
Um, you just have to have a collection of herbs and, and to do some basic things. Mm -hmm. So the deal is that different plants growing in different environments are solving slightly different problems, slightly different microbes, slightly different environmental stresses. Um, so their chemistry is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So when you take multiple herbs, you get this really wonderful synergy. So typically in the herbal medicine, you know, it's typically multiple, anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen herbs that are blended together to get this enhancement across the board. So I don't ever take any single herbs by themselves. I'm always taking collections Got of it. herbs and looking at, and instead of looking, well, what was that traditional use? Um, you know, what is it doing in my body? So right now, I'm 65, I'm healthy, I really don't have any health issues, I'm in very good health at my age. You know, amazingly, my joints healed, my heart healed, everything healed. But I do have basic maintenance. So um, I do have a basic collection of herbs that I typically take. Uh, rhodiola is one of my tops, um, again, from Siberia. And, you know, so you look at the plant and go, okay, you know, it lives in this really harsh, cold environment, typically at altitude. Um, it's pumping out chemistry to protect itself from physical stress. And it turns out that's what it does for us. It protects us from physical stress. So uh, in its native environment, it was typically taken for workers working long hours at altitude, it helps oxygenate our tissues, you know, so it protects our cells, protects our mm. tissues, protects our organs, um, which is really wonderful. Um, so that's a favorite herb. It has been for a long time. Very slightly energizing, but not in the same way as caffeine. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't give you this jolt. It's just kind of a, yeah, you feel energized. That's awesome. Um, so it's a good one. Uh, uh, reishi, you know, we, we talk about herbs being plants, but we kind of throw in the medicinal mushrooms in there too. They're not really plants, but they have similar chemistry. And reishi, um, you know, you, you guys are out in the woods a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, have you ever seen shelf mushrooms growing on the side of the tree? And some of them kind of look like a rainbow a little bit, totally. kind of a rust colored rainbow. Mm -hmm. That's a reishi mushroom. Um, and they're all over everywhere, yeah. over the entire world. Um, uh, the uh, Asian species has been heavily studied in Japan and has some of the most potent anti-cancer substances wow. known. Um, it is an immune modulator. What that means is it balances your immune system. So like if you have overactive allergies and that sort of thing, it tones those down, but at the same time, it can boost underactive mm. parts of the immune system. It's balancing, protects your organs, protects your cells, really wonderful. Um, go to Kola I mentioned, that's another great one from India. Turmeric, everybody's heard of that. Um, it's, uh, it's a relative of ginger. Um, it's a rhizome, which some people would know as a root. Um, you can certainly use it as a seasoning in food. Uh, people in India consume about a gram of turmeric every day wow. in their curries. Wow. And it is felt to be one of the big reasons why people in India have such an unusually low risk of Alzheimer's and cancer. Mm. Potent anti-inflammatory. Mm. Um, other herbs, milk thistle, that's a favorite. Mm -hmm. 
um, milk thistle is uh, a thistle. It's really beautiful. That that, um, that on the front of my book, that that pink color. Mm-hmm. That's milk thistle. Oh no thistle. way! This uh, yeah, it, it almost yeah. looks so like that's a, a that's a milk blossom. thistle. You know what I mean? It's really yeah. pretty. Um, and there are other thistles too, but milk thistle has been studied for its ability to protect liver function, mm. which is really important today. Yeah. You know, we talked about all those toxins we're bombarded with, mm-hmm. right? People just get slammed with much more toxins in our food, in our water, in our mm-hmm. air. And, you know, part of aging is losing liver function. We gradually burn out all our liver cells. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I was doing surgeries, I made always when I did laparoscopies to look inside, I always looked at people's liver. And somebody in their 20s would have this nice beefy red liver but by age 40 or 50, it'd start be, being uh, looking like a kind of a yellow model color. And that was liver cells burning out and being replaced with fat mm. cells that don't do anything. Wow. Um, so as we lose fat cells, our cholesterol goes up, our blood sugar goes up, and our ability to process toxins goes down. Mm-hmm. So we become more toxic as we get older. Mm. So milk thistle protects liver cells and actually has been found to help regenerate liver cells. So my cholesterol, I've been taking milk thistle for 15 years and my cholesterol without any drugs is lower than it was when I was in my 40s. Mm. Wow. Right on. So, so, so we, we've got all these different um, herbs. We've got, um, loved the explanation of what they do. Oh my gosh. I was like thinking, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this at like half speed to, to, and, and, take, and notes. take notes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but l- let's, let's talk about like treatment of different sorts of autoimmune and what, what, cause like, um, is it just, is it just herbs? Is there other things that kind of come with that? Are we talking about herb diet, fitness? I kind of just jotted some things down here as I was thinking about this. What's the, uh, you know, what, what does the treatment look like? Yeah. You know, it's all cellular. I mean, you, you need to get a good diet. And, you know, we, you, you folks talk a lot about diet on your, on your, your, your podcast. I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, whole food diet, mm-hmm. getting enough vegetables and vegetable fiber, um, you know, our, our vegetables don't have the phytochemicals that herbs do, but they still have a lot of great stuff. Yeah. You know, broccoli, celery, wonderful chemicals mm-hmm. there that are protective. Um, so, but also dietary fiber from vegetables. So getting half vegetables, I try to eat more vegetables than anything mm-hmm. else. I try to keep my carbohydrate count below 150. I eat meat, but I'm not a heavy meat mm-hmm. eater, and I eat a lot of fish and poultry. Mm-hmm. Um, so diet is important. Doing things to reduce that toxin load. Um, you know, I use filtered water. I buy organic whenever it's practical. Uh, I live in a location where our air is really super mm-hmm. clean. Um, so not everybody has that option, but keeping your indoor air clean with filters and things like that can be very important. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of things, keeping your stress level down, making eight hours of sleep, just a big priority, not some nights every night and getting plenty of exercise just to move blood. Um, 
You know, all the herbs that I've talked about so far, I think are important as a baseline for anyone, but moving into recovery um, from any kind of chronic illness, uh, chronic Lyme disease or beyond, I think looking at herbs which have a little bit more potent antimicrobial properties. And again, you know, different herbs have different properties depending on that natural plant's environment where they, they evolved. Um, so we have some really nice plants. Um, one that's always on my list is Japanese knotweed. Um, Japanese knotweed is an invasive. It's considered a, a noxious weed that grows all over everywhere. It's also one of the best sources of resveratrol. Mm. Um, resveratrol is what we find in our grapes. Mm -hmm. And resveratrol helps protect our mitochondria and also has really nice antimicrobial properties. But Japanese knotweed is loaded with many chemicals that have antimicrobial properties against the Lyme disease microbe. And this is, you know, interestingly, uh, a few years ago, Johns Hopkins took a look at some of these things and found that some of the herbs that we're commonly using in uh, for chronic Lyme disease actually do kill Borrelia in a test tube study in the mm. lab. So Japanese knotweed was one of those herbs. Um, but interestingly, it also had activity against Bartonella, Borrelia, and a wide spectrum of other things, and COVID, mm. too. Mm -hmm. SARS virus. Mm -hmm. So it just shows that the range of the herbs, it's not just one chemical, it's a spectrum. It's a defense system of the mm -hmm. plant. So it does a lot. Um, so Japanese knotweed is a great one. Uh, Chinese skullcap is another one that was on the Johns Hopkins list. It's a really wonderful synergist. So what it's doing is enhancing the value of other herbs. It's boosting their absorption or their bioavailability or activity in the body. But it had some pretty impressive immunomodulating properties, immune balancing, yeah. and also uh, some really nice antimicrobial properties. Andrographis is another herb. But, you know, when we look at these herbs that we, I, I typically call them the antimicrobial herbs, they all have these other great effects. It's like andrographis. Well, it has anti-diabetic effects and, and it protects tissues. And, you know, the list of benefits just goes on and on. It's because mm -hmm. of protecting cells. Um, so, you know, andrographis, garlic, that's a great mm -hmm. one. Um, ginger, you know, I start getting a cold or a flu. I load up on all of these herbs and go straight to the grocery store and get the biggest hunk of ginger <laughs> that I can find come home, put it in a processor, and make this really strong ginger tea, and I sip on it all yeah. day. And it has some wonderful antimicrobial properties uh, that has been found to have activity against SARS virus. So, you know, so all of these things um, have value. But when you look at the herbs, I mean, it's, you know, it's not like... And, you know, I wouldn't say, wow, you know, here's the cure for Ebola virus. What the herbs are doing is suppressing these pathogens that are in our system already, um, enhancing cellular wellness by reducing cellular stress. And, and the fact of the matter is, you know, you hear a lot about the immune system. 
but our cells can protect themselves from microbes. So there's this process called autophagy that they've discovered, that autophagy is cellular housekeeping. So cells, you know, it's how cells recover from stress. They basically have the ability to break down worn out proteins and parts and mitochondria and DNA and, you know, break those down into the component of organic molecules and reuse them to rebuild the cell. That process is also exactly the mechanism that they can break, that they can expel or kill microbes that invade them. So a healthy cell can often uh, expel a microbe and defend itself. So if we've got really healthy cells, that's just as important or that's a key part of having a healthy immune system, you know, a healthy defense system. Um, so the herbs help us mm. with that just because they're protecting our cells but also helping to balance that internal microbiome. So the herbs are doing a lot of things all at one time. And, you know, there's, there's just such a, a list. So most of these herbs that I've talked about don't have any drug-like effects, mm. right? And a lot of people are trying to use herbs, I think, like drugs, that it's like, okay, I've got this symptom and I don't want to go to my doctor and get a drug and I don't like the toxicity of drugs, so I'm going to take an herb because an herb's less toxic and we're going to and that's how we're going to solve the problem. And they found that it's not as potent. So there are herbs that have drug-like properties. So when you move out of these, what I call the everyday herbs that you can take on an ongoing basis that really don't have any drug-like effects, some of the phytochemicals do have a physiologic effect that can be drug-like. So it can be a sedative, it can be a stimulant. You know, caffeine is, a, is in a family of phytochemicals that we find in a lot of different plants. So it's affecting our chemical messengers and it has this physiologic effect in our body. Um, and so you kind of go up the ladder, but the more drug-like effect a plant is having, the closer you get to it being a poison. So, you know, it's, there are things out there that have been used in herbal medicine that have very much drug-like effects. Um, there's there's a, a, an herb called digitalis or foxglove, and there's a drug that came from that called digoxin that is, uh, it is good for uh, 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 heart failure because it blocks processes that causes the, the heart muscle to beat mm. harder. But you have to really you be very careful with the dose because a little bit extra and you'll kill somebody mm -hmm. with it. It'll cause the heart to stop. Wow. So, so, you know, so, you, so there are plants with drug-like effects, but I don't tend to use them as much. You know, when I get out there, I'm looking at it and going, well, you know, at that point, I want a very controlled dose and something that's very pure. I probably am going to, to use a pharmaceutical instead. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to respect that about plants. So here I'm talking about a part of herbology that I don't think people are taking advantage of. This, this potential of herbs to enhance wellness, enhance healing, 
um, restore our health is very different than looking to herbs to treat mm. symptoms like so many people do. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying this because it, there's a tendency in this like health wellness world to say, oh, I don't want to be on any pharmaceuticals. I don't want to take a pill. I don't want to do anything. And then you talk to them and they take 45 supplements when they get sick. And it's like, that's kind of the same thing, right? You're looking for external healers. Um, you're not necessarily making the connection between your body doing the work and supporting it through something like herbs. But I think what you're more saying is, hey, we could be utilizing herbs in a preventative fashion. We should be utilizing these Absolutely. every day. We should be incorporating these into our lifestyle, not just reaching for something when we feel a little tickle in our throat or something. So that's an interesting viewpoint because sometimes I think people get burnt out on, um, you know, the natural supplement, um, way of thinking about it and then at the end of the day it kind of feels like well it just feels like i'm taking a pill for every ill except for it's a little bit more natural yeah and i think what you're yeah. saying is like hey let's actually push our level of understanding about herbs one level higher and say you know if you exactly. need really quick concise targeted quote healing or let's call it so i don't even call it healing symptom suppression stabilization, stabilization. Yeah. a pharmaceutical is probably your safer bet because it's studied you're not going to poison yourself and you know what if you're reaching for that you're at some level of, of desperation but if you're just trying to right. say hey i want to walk around I'm a, I'm a mother to three young kids i want to be healthy i want to do everything in my power to be as capable as i can right I've, I've seen like so many videos circulating on social media about amazing strong people helping other folks through this hurricane because they have able equipped bodies they've been working out they've been eating right there they're able to stay up all night long and help people through five feet wa of water okay i don't want to go into that scenario but i want to be able to manage myself if i do how can i incorporate um, the best lifestyle routine while well, you're saying herbs are a part of that. It's not just this, Hey, I feel sick. Let's go for, it. and I don't, maybe that's just resonating with me. Cause I'm, I'm, I've kind of fallen into that thinking of like, Oh, I'm sick. I need to go grab this, but it's just refreshing to hear you explain the other side of that and how these things probably work better low dose over a long period of time versus hey let's get let's treat an herb like a drug there's a very clear distinction that i just hope our listeners um clung on to that it sounds like there's some adapt like, so, like you know, hey i've encountered this uh flu-like symptom or this this you know cold or maybe i'm and i'm gonna go out and buy ginger because this is going to support this function that i know is going to need a little bit of extra mm -hmm, support mm -hmm. in this time yeah and it's, it's right. less of like a this is going to cure it mm-hmm it's more of a my body, body is fighting this and let's let's uh let's yeah. keep this system you're you're boosting your healing capacity yeah. because you, you know you're affecting things that it's at the cellular level and that is my biggest message for the world that i would like to convey is wow we're just missing out on this wonderful thing that we could all be taking advantage of. You know, here we're living in a world where the rate of cancer and rate of chronic illness is going sky high. And part of that is the things that we're doing to ourselves, and yeah, we should change that. But making those kinds of changes is difficult. So herbs can do so much just to increase our resilience mm -hmm. against illness. 
without a penalty. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the, 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 the potential for side effects and adverse reactions is extremely low. Um, cost is relatively low. So here's this just really simple thing that you can do. And it's just kind of crazy that we're not doing it. So where I would like to see more research in the future is just this concept of using herbs on a daily basis for prevention. And I truly believe if everybody in the country started doing that tomorrow, we'd drop our rate of cancer and chronic illness down significantly within a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such an easy thing to do. Sure, people need to change their diet and you know stress modification and everything. We all need to do that. Um, I'm certainly not advocating that we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But herbs is such an easy thing that you know we we all can do um and it's um yeah so uh, one thing that is stirring around in my head that maybe someone listening to this is also wondering is you came from the medical world we've talked about the medical system i know i want to be really cautious and understanding when i go to the medical system i'm going there for specific things i know they can't help me with others right kind of like we talked about today chronic illness but what is the what is the block or the the reason why our everyday practitioners don't get on board with talking about herbs. I mean, they don't get on board with talking about nutrition because they don't ever counsel. I shouldn't say ever. I rarely hear of a practitioner who sat their their patient down and said, let's talk about your stress level, how you're, how you're eating, how you're sleeping. It's usually, okay, these are your symptoms. Here are your drugs. Where, why can't we get on board with the herbals um, in the traditional medical paradigm? Yeah, it's um, that's pretty and deeply ingrained, and and it and it really goes back um, a, a long way. And so many doctors, uh, early part of the twentieth, latter part of the 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 nineteenth century, early part of the twentieth century, doctors did use mm-hmm. herbs and. The, there was a group of physicians called the eclectic physicians who used a lot of herbs and you know really had a wonderful reputation for healing and promoting healing. Um, the problem with herbs is they don't necessarily need to be standardized in the same way as a pharmaceutical. You know, as I said, and if we have a time, we can talk about different herbal preparations and what defines a, health, a quality herb and that sort of thing. But quite frankly, you don't need to regulate the dose of an herb the way that you would regulate a drug, even an over-the-counter drug like ibuprofen or 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 acetaminophen. I mean, you think about those things. Um, you go to a pharmacy and you can buy different brands of ibuprofen, but it's all the same dose. And that's heavily regulated by the FDA to make sure that the concentration of the drug in those tablets is very, very specific. And the reason is that if you take two to four of those tablets, you're going to be fine. You take eight or 10 or 12, you could really, really be sick and you could take a whole bottle of it. You could be very, very ill. And that's true of any drug on the market that all drugs in anything but a therapeutic dose or a potential poison. Um, So they have to be standardized. And that's what wasn't in herbal therapy is there was a lack of standardization. 
So along about 1930 or so, the uh, American Medical Association said, no, we're not going to have this non-standardized therapy. From now on, if you want to have a physician's license, you are going to use either standardized drug therapy or you're going to use standardized surgical therapy. There isn't going to be any herbal, electrical, wave, light, none of these other kinds of therapies because we can't control that. So what? So so it wasn't sinister. What they wanted to ensure was that doctors in San Francisco and Jacksonville, North Carolina, and New York City were all using the yeah, same stuff. Totally. So that was what was behind it. But it was a boom to the pharmaceutical yeah. industry, <laughs> and we have lived within those those that those parameters ever mm. since. So when doctors look at herbal therapy, they are trained to look at it as, okay, here's this thing that's non-standardized. We don't know what's in it. Is it really safe? You better stick with your pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. And that's what they get with their training. So most medical education, either directly or indirectly in this country, is paid for by pharmaceutical and, and uh, surgical technology companies. Yeah, that right there. And so that's the education they're getting. That's the standardized protocols they're following. Right. I, and it's hard to step outside of that, is that if that's all mm -hmm. you know. I don't know how widely known that is, is that the, it starts at the educational level. We're talking about med school textbooks being influenced by the very pharmaceutical companies who later will benefit from the dueling out of these meds. Thank you for that explanation because I've always wondered where the disconnect was and it, it makes sense and like so many other things when you're trying to standardize something and regulate it for the protection of mass population there has to be some some disregard for nuance and individuality because you can't sit down yeah. with every single person and so yeah it might not That's have right. been a sinister situation but goodness we have failed to self-reflect in our model as it is for chronic illness and so i'm yep. so thankful for people like you who um have written books and have equipped people with education your knowledge and i i have personal friends who used your protocol for lyme to help heal their husband i mean i, I was reading my this this book you sent um with some friends at a lake house the other weekend and someone said oh dr bill rawls I, I read his first book. I used his um, his Lyme protocol to help heal my husband. And I was like, no way. We're talking to him next Friday. And it, she, her mind was blown because she had no idea that I, I we had that connection. And so you're just touching so many lives that I'm sure you don't even, you can't even fully grasp. And I just think it's a really, really incredible thing for a practitioner with your knowledge and understanding to be willing to share this, to sit on a podcast with us for two hours and talk about these things and, and not charge these people. You know, I just, it just gets me fired up because it's exactly what we need. It's the answer to our a broken system. So, well, if you feel honored to be on a podcast, imagine being the knuckle dragger that I am. I think <laughs> I, I would love to, I would love to jump into some practical um, info sure. quickly. And we can, we can, if you, if before right. that, if you wanted to touch on some of the, herbal uh, preparations and whatnot that you were discussing, you know, pr prior, I'm happy to jump, jump into that. But, um, but if not, we can, we can move on to some practical ideas. 
What do you got, Bill? Well, very quickly, I mean, you know, just looking at um, herbs, when I was using mine, I was using really high-grade standardized extracts. And it does make a difference. Mm. It does make a difference what you use. So when you look at pro- professional or commercial preparations of herbs, um, you, you kind of the first level is a whole herb powder. Mm. So basically they take the herb, uh, dry it, grind it up into a powder and put it in a capsule. And you're getting a lot of inert fiber that's not doing anything and not much phytochemicals. Mm. So they're typically not very expensive, but you shouldn't have high expectations. A better way to, to get the chemicals, you know, what we want is the chemicals, not the fiber. Mm. So that phytochemistry is what we're searching for out of the herb. So you can take the plant, soak it in water and alcohol, and the water and alcohol together pull out different parts of that chemistry to pull all the chemistry out of the plant. And then they they throw the plant parts away, so it's just the chemical and water and alcohol. And that's what a tincture is. So when you take a tincture, it's just the, the, the chemistry of the plant. And um, so the more plant they put in the extract, the extraction media, the higher the concentration of the chemical. So you can measure mm-hmm. that. Um, and they're good. And I use some tinctures, but they're not as convenient as other as what we call standardized powdered extracts. So a standardized powdered extracts and what we use in our products, um, they, they, they take that water alcohol tincture, spray it on the surface, dry the out water and alcohol, collect the, the dried chemicals and put that in a capsule. So that can be 10 to 100 times more potent than that dried herb capsule. And also it's quite a bit more potent than the water alcohol and you don't get the, the, all the alcohol mm-hmm. with it. So they're easy, you know, three capsules of, uh, of a uh, you know, high-grade standardized extract, you know, that, that can be like half a bottle or a, of a tincture. Um, and you're taking that every day. So that is my preferred way. There, there's some things that, you know, it's, it's harder to get them that way. And so I do a few tinctures. And there's some herbs that are just really nice, like one and making my ginger tea. I really mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually make a really good ginger tea. In the, I feel like we do it in the winter. We do more. it more in the winter, yeah. We just boil the ginger root. I don't even know if we peel it. Yeah, we slice no, it. No, we we sli- we I use a spoon typically and peel it up a little bit, Do and you? then we chop it up and we simmer it for it's a couple hours. Makes like a syrup. Spicy. It's so spicy, yeah. but it's it yeah. does the trick when you are just like you need a boost of something, and you're like, oh, my body needs something. We make that ginger tea. Sometimes we had to squeeze a lemon in there. Sometimes I put it over soda water. It <laughs> makes a like a homemade ginger ale. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. good stuff. Yeah, your mom actually turned us on to that. She did. Yeah. She did. Shout out to Big T. Big T out here and getting some. The <laughs> the uh, um, let, let's let, let's jump into some practical stuff. The the uh, getting started with with herbs. So if if I'm brand new, getting started, what's what, where's where, where am I starting? All right, um, I divided up into three levels. All right, so level one, you're healthy. Yeah, you may have symptoms that come and go, but generally you consider yourself health pretty good. You don't really have to see in a doctor regularly. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you, your age, you want to stay that way, but especially as you age. 
So what aging is, is the loss of functional cells. So I don't have nearly the cells that I had at age 20. Um, so I have less to work with, so I need to really protect my cells. So just a cell protection system is what the herbs are going to do for us. And that, um, that group of herbs that I mentioned, along with a few others, rhodiola, uh, go to cola, reishi, you know, they're doing different things as far as immune modulation, anti-inflammatory, protecting heart, protecting liver. Some herbs are a little better. So I try to make a combination that's going to suit all those things. So level one, taking a basic level of that once a day, you're pretty good. You want to make it a little bit better? Add on an essential fatty acid. And my favorite source is krill oil. So add that. And you're doing great things for your cells. You're keeping them healthy. And eh, that's, that's probably all you need to do on a daily basis. None of those herbs are you going to feel a drug-like effect from. You know, you're not going to get this, this feeling from them like you would a drug or some other kinds of things. Level two is, all right, I'm starting to develop symptoms. You know, I'm, uh, I'm starting to get some arthritis and I'm a little worried about just mental functions um, and, or, you know, I, I'm getting fatigue. I just don't have the energy, the stamina. Then I take that basic regimen of herbs, but then boost that in some way that other herbs that might be specific. In other words, uh, taking more turmeric, and there's another anti-inflammatory called Boswellia, but also combining that with some nutrients that are really good for joints. So if we're looking at joint health, uh, turmeric, Boswellia, eggshell mandrane, glucosamine, collagen, those kinds of things can really be helpful for that. Um, brain health. A lot of people are worried about dementia with good reason. And so uh, uh, good herbs that help our brain work better are bacopa and lion's mane. And there's several others that are just really nice for that. Um, so different areas, you know, uh, that, that you know, maybe cardiovascular concerns. There's some herbs that might boost that mm -hmm. a little bit more, like hawthorn and arjuna. Um, so, yeah, so basic level of protection, but we're going to push that out a little bit. And then level three, I've lost my health completely. I have fibromyalgia, chronic Lyme, or whatever. I need some pretty robust support. So at that point, I'm looking at, okay, this dormant microbiome has been starting to reactivate and it's starting to break down tissues. And they've got some pretty significant cellular distress throughout their body and they need some work. So we're going to take that basic level or any other areas that we might need to work on and boost it with antimicrobial herbs and more uh, cellular support with ingredients like glutathione and uh, possibly coenzyme Q10 and some other kinds of nutrients that our cells might need a little bit more readily. More B vitamins, more minerals, so more of a uh, bioavailable multivitamin. So we're going to so we're going to look at just more robust cellular support throughout the entire mm. body. I so that that kind of um, that should give people That's a guideline of, of you know where 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 to get started. I love that. Things. And so kind of uh, moving on here to another one, I want to identify whether or not I have a chronic illness. Where, where do I start? 
Yeah, you know, the way to do that with a medical system is you're defined as having a chronic illness when you uh, have a diagnosis. But uh, I define it from the point of view of cellular health, all right? So instead of defining someone as chronically ill, I like to look at wellness on a spectrum. And, you know, I, I put the graph in the book. Um, so at one end, you've got wellness. At the other end, you've got chronically ill. And we're all on that, that curve somewhere. So the peak of wellness, you're, you, you accumulate cells until age 20. So at age 20, you have five to 10 times more cells than your body needs to survive. And all of those cells are in peak functional health. So you're great. You're low. That is the point that your risk of chronic illness is lower than any point in life. And that's why at age 20, you can get away with eating bad food and staying up all night and doing all these crazy things is because your body is just a powerhouse. But after that point, you start losing cells and you lose cells all the way through your life. So what other studies have shown, I don't know if you've read the Blue Zones Mm. books, um, where they looked at people that were aging. So we're losing cells throughout our life, but if you keep your cells healthy, you won't necessarily develop symptoms of chronic illness. So, you know, at the other end of the spectrum is somebody who's really sick. Um, You know, they're kind of at the end of life. So we're all somewhere along there. We all get symptoms. And if you have a high capacity for cellular regeneration, symptoms come and go. But when you start accumulating symptoms that are become chronic, you're starting to take steps toward chronic illness. And that happens long before you actually develop a diagnosis of some kind. So at that point, you go into the doctor and all they really have is drugs that might help the symptoms. What you should be saying at that point is, I'm starting to develop chronic cellular distress and my cells aren't recovering and I need to start paying attention. I need to start eating better. I need to get more sleep. I need to start taking herbs every day. And if you do that, your cells are going to recover and all those symptoms are going to go away. So, so I'd like to look at it very differently than our conventional medical system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put that cellular model in it, it all just makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it's just really about supporting the, bod- the natural bodily functions and the miracle of, of, you know, the world we live in being plant, plant sources, plant, I won't call them phytonutrients now, I'll call them phytochemicals, um, and their interaction with our cells and the belief that the body is a healing system and it wants to heal and it, yeah. it wants to thrive. We do not want to, you know, be in perpetual sickness. Um, do you have any more questions? I, I would love to know, and this is something we love to ask, you know, all of our, all of our guests, but... You know, Dr. Bill, what does a day in the life of Dr. Bill Rawls look like? Mm. <laughs> My life is pretty good. <laughs> you know, I've been doing these herbs. Um, at age 50, I thought age 60, I was going to be partially disabled. Mm. And I had no idea and, and, and probably not be able to work and, 
you know, just didn't know what my life is going to be. And I'm 65 now and doing things that I thought I wouldn't be doing, you know. Um, so I'm not doing a medical practice like I used to. I still do consults from time to time that I just help people sort their lives back, kind of high level of health coaching. But I found that if I devote time to writing and doing podcasts and helping people understand these concepts, then that's probably the most important use of yeah. my time. So um, I typically get up in the morning and go for a long walk with my wife and the dog. And, um, you know, breakfast for me may be an egg and some sauteed greens um, or a smoothie of mm -hmm. some kind. I, I don't eat very much carbohydrate in the early part of the day. And I don't eat a lot in the, in the middle. You know, I try to follow a practice of intermittent fasting. Um, but for about four hours in my morning, that's my writing thinking mm. time. And I do that pretty intensely and then have a light lunch and uh, sometimes take a nap, sometimes go for a long walk. Um, and then the afternoons, I'm often doing podcasts or working, uh, having meetings with our, our team at Vital Plan. Uh, just figuring, you know, formulating supplements, um, uh, improving the pro quality of the products, those kinds of things. Um, and then later in the day kind of depends on uh, the weather and which way the wind blows, literally. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a fascination with something called kite boarding oh. for 20 years. And uh, so if the wind's blowing, I do kite boarding, if not paddle boarding mm -hmm. or paddle board surfing. Um, sometimes I take my little skiff and go fishing, but I try to do uh, something outside in, in in nature and then evenings are more just wind down yeah. time and uh, usually a nice supper you know we cook a lot of meals I mean I my wife and I sit and look at each other about every meal and go wow do we eat great mm -hmm. food and we can get such good food here compared to what we could eat yeah. out you know and um, what's some yeah, of your that's mainly what's my some of life. your favorite meals you're eating at nighttime Oh, I, I really love cooking, um, and I, it, it varies. I, you know, I love your variety. We, um, we do a lot of Asian mm -hmm. cooking, Thai, Korean, that sort of thing. Um, it's sometimes just simple things that, you know, if I happen to catch a fish, it'll be a really good quality slaw and maybe uh, sweet potatoes. Mm. Um so I, I enjoy different kinds of creations. I like uh, to do Indian yeah. uh, style and use different kinds of curries to get different flavors. So I'm using a lot of culinary herbs, uh, typically whole foods exclusively. I really don't eat much processed mm -hmm. food at all. You're doing a lot of seafood uh, since you're in the Carolinas? Fair amount, yeah. I would say we probably eat a much larger amount of seafood than than many mm -hmm. places. You know, we shrimp or you know what whatever is in season, and sometimes buy things at the fish market. Sometimes you know whatever mm -hmm. I can catch. Is there a fish that you catch where it's like game on? We're about to have the a best fan. meal. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, I, I'm just starting to get back into fishing. I, so much of my life was so busy. And then, quite frankly, doing that book for three years was just mm-hmm. intense. You know, I was spending 10 hours a day on the computers wow. uh, for like three years getting that thing done. It was it was a Your project. most recent book? So I'm just, so I built my little boat last fall. And I'm just starting to get back into the fishing um, but we had some pretty good fishing here, and, and it is seasonal. Um, we have our most common big fish, and these can be, you know, like um, uh, 5 to 20 pounds, something called a red drum that's out in the inlets and comes back in the estuaries. Uh, flounder oh, yeah. you'd probably be aware of. Um, so they're different kinds of fish. My absolute favorite fish to eat, though, and it's coming up our season for that, in the fall, when the water starts cooling down, we get a speckled mm-hmm. trout that looks a little bit like a river trout and has a little bit similar flavor, but they can be pretty good-sized fish, and they are fun mm-hmm. to catch. I love trout that fishing. Sounds, that sounds outstanding. Um Right on. I, I, last last question I had was, uh, you know, what what is it that you are learning today? Today, these um, days, <laughs> every day, I'm, I, I am I'm tweaking this equation of learning more intricately how the herbs are affecting our cells and our body and. The latest thing, there's just a huge fascination that I think we're just just starting to, in, into, to enter into is understanding this more complex relationship and the possibility that we may have dormant microbes inside our cells. You know, there's studies showing that, you know, we have a brain microbiome, that we have all these things in our heart and our tissues. We didn't think that was yeah. there. Um, we just assumed that our tissues and our blood were yeah. sterile. And, and, and you know, and, and it's not like there's one study or one group of researchers that went, wow, we found this thing. I'm seeing it pop up all around the world in different locations in different ways. And it's that we're, our, our methods of analysis are getting better and better. So we're finding things that we didn't think were there. And, you know, and you're going to get pushback because it really, if, if, if this is real, which all the evidence is pushing that way, if this is real, that we do have a dormant tissue and blood microbiome, it changes everything about how we think a chronic mm-hmm. illness. Absolutely everything. I mean, it totally disrupts everything that we're doing yeah. right now. And so you're going to see pushback. You know, already I'm seeing, um, you know, articles in scientific journals that saying, oh, it's all contaminants and this and that. But not when you're seeing it pop up different places, different ways with different research methods and different researchers. And it keeps popping up enough that it's getting hard to ignore now. And so and I think we're just just scratching the surface of this. I think in another 20 years, it's going to put us in a totally different mm-hmm. place. And it's really exciting because when they get around to figuring out that this is real, the solution is going to be herbal mm. therapy. Well, imagine when they first discovered the microbiome and the gut lining. I mean, that's only like 15, 20 exactly. years old of knowledge. We had no idea. That's right. And think of how, how much yeah. our, our medical system has had to, well, 
maybe should have adjusted more, but it is certainly adjusting based off of that knowledge. So exactly. that's really good. Bill, this has been so rich. And like Joey said, I think I'm going to re-listen to this just to make sure I soak it in, you know, in the middle of recording, I'm in, I'm in interview mode and I just cannot wait to listen to this again and soak up all the information. You are truly a wealth of knowledge. And I agree with you. I think spending your time writing and and um, speaking into your company and um, equipping people, the masses, really, with this information is such a good use of your time. So thank you for sacrificing those three years and those long hours and writing this book that's sitting in front of me that's like three inches thick. I mean, it's packed full with, incre- <laughs> with incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I love it. So I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your time. And I'm just really grateful for people who are willing to step outside of the box, have these hard conversations and, and ask the questions that not very many people are willing to ask. So right on Dr. Bill Rawls. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity of of being here. I really appreciate it very Mm -hmm. much. Looking forward to our next talk and um, yeah. Thank you again. All right. Take care. And with that, Dr. Bill Rawls has left the virtual conversation. And uh, yeah, let, let's quick summarize some of the ways people can learn more about Dr. Bill Rawls. He, he has two books, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, he so does. The one that's sitting in front of us, I will talk about because I can read it because it's, in, it's in front of me. Uh, the Cellular Wellness Solution. Mm-hmm. It says, tap into your full health potential with science-backed power of herbs. That's awesome. You can find that where, I mean, Amazon, right? All this stuff is on Amazon. Yeah. You mean good to go? He ha- he has a website um, specifically, I believe, the Cellular Wellness Solution. Let me check that. Um, but this is his latest book. It just dropped in, I believe, June or July of this year. Okay. So this is brand new. He just released it. He also has another book called Unlocking Lyme, mm. which he obviously wrote after he um, went through his own experiences with Lyme disease. And that's the book I was talking about mm. where I know people who have used his protocols in that book and found healing so um yeah as he said right now he's not really he doesn't have a private practice he's Mm. doing some high level health coaching but he's spending his time um educating people through his books this thing is huge it not to intimidate people but just has a wealth of sources and citations totally and so it's it's packed full putting it in there for you yeah so you can find his books on amazon or wherever books are sold he also has a couple different websites um i think you have them written down of course we'll always put them in the show notes but i'm just curious your overall thoughts of that conversation have you has it changed the way you've thought about things what are you thinking yeah you know i feel like i learned an enormous amount Mm -hmm. and you know Maybe I'm just different. I didn't walk into this conversation with any preconceived notion of any kind. Mm-hmm. I wasn't walking in here thinking like, oh man, your herbs are such a blah, blah, blah. And he's going to convince me otherwise. I'm sure there's people out there that are like that. Mm-hmm. I could kind of see how if they didn't have information or proof or some kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, way of confirming the validity of something like this, how they might be skeptical. Sure. I didn't have that coming in and I don't have that now. I just, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, I feel like if there's something like drinking ginger tea or, I mean, that's how, I mean, that's very comparable to a lot of these other herbs he's talking about just Mm -hmm. because you don't know the name of it Mm -hmm. and it's put into some kind of pill. And the preparation of that was very interesting to hear, right? 
producing something like this that people can take on a large scale, my guess is you could buy this stuff or grow some of the stuff and treat it the way that he was talking about mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. That all, to me, I'm like, these are plants that are growing in the ground that are like good to go. It's not scary to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if, uh, if they are going to bring you a benefit, that's huge. If they're not, and they're just going to nourish your body, you know what I mean? I feel like there's, it's not much of a, for you, it's a win-win. Yeah. I feel like it's a win-win kind of situation. Sure. I agree. I just appreciate, I can tell he's a very teachable person in that even he is saying his, his, his understanding of these things is evolving. And some of this stuff that he has really discovered is within the last three or four years. And so I, I always appreciate someone who comes from a long family line of, of one profession mm -hmm. and is still willing to step outside of that traditional model and continue pushing himself. And when you asked him what he's learning today, it's just a continuation of his career. And you oh, can yeah. tell he's just hungry he's for the, the right information. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I appreciate that. I can tell he just has a humble spirit. He's very, um, you know, just spending a couple hours with him. I would say he's very inquisitive, mm -hmm. right? He wants to ask those questions. And so I, I want that from someone who is trying to pioneer a movement. You know, they totally. have to be asking questions. So I appreciate that. I, I I did know a little bit about him. I've listened to several of his interviews. I We know a little bit about the herbal usage in Lyme treatment and mm -hmm. other chronic illness. And so it's, it's a familiar space for mm -hmm. me. It's never something where I've been like, oh, that doesn't work. But I, I can understand why it can feel a little confusing yeah. because exactly what he said you know in the 1930s and i loved his explanation of when we moved into more of a systemic it wasn't standardized it's not something that's regulated and yeah. thus it couldn't be distributed across all different does that remind networks. you of any other narrative? everything else right i mean just everything in the world that <laughs> let's needs ship to be... dairy everywhere yeah, everyone yeah. let's pasteurize it yeah so i just think it's it's a really um it was informative it filled in a lot of the gaps for me that I personally felt with herbals and honestly cellular health and just understanding the body physiology in general. Mm. I, I just really appreciated the entire conversation and um, it was a lengthier one. I, I never want to rush interviews like that totally. because we would never get half of that info. And I'm so thankful for that time and space that he just sacrificed for us. So, yeah. So if you want to find and learn more about, Dr. Bill Rawls. You can find his websites. He's got one. It's vitalplan.com. Mm -hmm. He's also got rawlsmd.com. He also has the cellular or cellularwellness.com. All three of those, get after it, find them online. You also can find his books, The Cellular Wellness Solution and Overcoming Lyme. That's the other one. Unlocking right? Lyme. Unlocking Lyme, sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, find those on Amazon.com. Dr. Bill Rawls, awesome human. Love talking to him. He's also just a really joyful, positive dude. I'd love to go fishing with him. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> or like, like, I'd love to get on the little boat. What was it? Uh, kite surfing? Yeah, I don't even know what that Yo, looks like, but I want to see it. I'm in. I would love to and try that. And he's 65. Good for him. Freaking awesome. It, is that like you're on a skateboard and it's like a sail? Don't think it's a skateboard. More of like a surfboard, probably. Oh, it's on the water. On the water, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I'm, I, yeah. And then you got like a kite that you hold on to that kind of pulls you around the water, pretty sure. So it's like a, it's your own personal sailboat, essentially. I mean, I you're Google standing it? on a board 
and it's the wind's blowing. (laughs) Kite surfing is what they call it. Okay. Right? Is that what he said? Yes. I'm Googling it right now. So you're holding a kite and you're surfing. I mean, I feel like it's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. You're talking to someone that's never done a wa- oh okay okay it yeah it is it's um, like a string you're like wakeboarding absolutely. and you're holding a kite ah uh, i see all right anyways yeah that's phenomenal i'm really impressed i'd love to do that anyways uh, we also have some things to get you in the game maybe not so much with herbs but with food with nutrition with food education mm-hmm. you can find those things on homegrowneducation.org that's our website we've got everything from children's nu- nutrition curriculum both for you know elementary and you know everything from what early El- elementary up to upper so everything from pre-k through sixth grade really is what got we you covered we uh we've got we've got information on there for you as well we've got the real food guide something to kind of get you started get you in the game of real food just like we were talking about getting you in the game with herbs i love the way he talked about that by the way talking about different like tiers of folk that want to get in the game yeah and uh, makes me like want to get a, like a tiered system of getting people in the game of real food mm-hmm. don't know how to make that happen yet but uh inspired the the real food guide gets in the game kind of talks about sourcing ways to better understand your own home and nutrition shopping preparation of food and ingredients uh, we've also got what's for dinner mm-hmm. it's a help me with what's for dinner it's a six-week nightly meal plan, so 42 dinners. Got you covered for all six weeks. You don't have to cook at all, but um, we give you the ideas of what to cook because the worst question in the world is asking, what's for dinner? And I, I think one of the ways I've been noticing with people that I'm talking to on Instagram is that it's really a, a powerful tool to help get you into a healthy dinner preparation rhythm and routine, mm-hmm. shopping and planning and meal prep. It's almost a tool to help you do that. Yeah. It's not necessarily like the perfect, you know, meal plan. Yeah. It's, it's not meant to be a cookbook. It's that you meant just... to be a tool right. to get you set up to provide and cook amazing, nutritious meals for your family. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all strive to be like Bill and Dr. Bill and, and being able to look at, you know, across the table and say, wow, love the food here. It can't, we, we'd never get anything this good at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's that's pretty awesome. We got cook, we got coloring books. Hey, if you if you like what you're listening to, you like this podcast, you can leave us a review. You can give us five stars. You can give us one star. You mm-hmm. know, whatever you want to do. As many stars as you want. Whatever but reviews got. do help us tremendously. Just get feedback. We um, appreciate all. Helps types. us find people like Dr. Bill Rawls, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, leave us a review. You can you can find us on Instagram. We're there. Mm-hmm. We're there to 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 talk to talk to you or to not you know whatever. We- <laughs> Uh, I'm at Joey Hazelmeyer. Elizabeth is at Liz Hazelmeyer. You can also find Elizabeth and this movement, this mission. We've got an Instagram called homegrown underscore education. That's the handle. Get on there. Find us. Talk to us. Connect with us. Mm -hmm. And until next time, that's a wrap.